し込めた一人の男が今日も行く真面目に遊ばぬ奴らには体で覚えさせるぞ Hello and welcome to Final Games, the podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and I welcome you to the ninth episode of the show. Can you believe it? We are already nine episodes in. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show so far and listened. I keep saying it almost every week, but the response has been overwhelming, and I've been receiving non stop messages about the show, and it just keeps growing with each episode. So thank you so much for that. This week, I have an incredible guest who, in true sporting fashion, helped me by jumping in at the last second. For a guest such as himself, who has been writing about video games since the early 90s and has been such a respected figure within the British video game industry for a long time, I would have liked more time to prepare. But, oh well. My guest this week is one of the UK's most respected video game writers and has been around for over 20 years. He started out way back in 1995 as the features editor for Edge magazine, where from there he went on to, edit, to be the editor of magazines such as DC UK, which was one of the UK's only Dreamcast dedicated magazines, Mobile Gamer, and a whole host more. He's been also a freelance writer since the turn of the new millennium and has written for just about every publication you can think of, including PC Gamer, FHM, 442, Official PlayStation, T3, and GameSpot. Not one for just magazines, though, he's also been involved in book writing and was part of the project for the beautiful and wonderful Sega Mega Drive collected works. And his latest book is a novel titled A Boy Made of Blocks, which is set to be released this autumn. His current day to day job is as the Guardian's newspaper games editor, where since 2005 he's been organizing the reviews, previews, and features about games that go on the Guardian's website and in the newspaper, including dealing with freelancers such as former guests Simon Parkin and Holly Nielsen. He writes daily blog posts for the Guardian's games blog and is a fortnightly comment in the Guardian's technology section. My guest today is the incredible Mr. Keith Stewart. Hello, Keith! Hello! How are you doing today?、I'm- I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's wonderful to have you on. <laughs> You've managed to compress 20 years into a few seconds. That was very good. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I hope I didn't skip over anything because before the show, we were talking about the process of like an introduction. And when it comes down to someone else having to write an introduction for you, what if they nail the important parts? So I hope I got the highlights, the good highlights of your career nailed down. <laughs> Yeah, you got, you got everything. You've got pretty much all this, the, the, the big stuff that I did, definitely. I don't、oh, think you missed anything. Good, I did once write for Bounce,、uh, the Japanese, the, the magazine for、um, Tower Records in,、oh, in Japan. Oh, really? Which was very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, I went into a Tower Records in Tokyo the past Christmas. So, you know, maybe. Was, There、yeah. were remnants of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. I think there really would be remnants if they were left. <laughs> Very good. So, how are you doing today? How, how, is, how is the morning there in the UK?、Uh, it's good. It's, quite,、um, it's a little bit cloudy, but it's still quite bright. I'm, I'm sitting in my kitchen in Froome in Somerset, looking out over the. You can look i n g out over the Wiltshire countryside actually. We're on the border between Somerset and Wiltshire, and, and you can see the uh, large uh, chalk horse on the side of the 
the hill in Westbury from my from my window. Oh, really? So Very that's cool. Quite, that's quite good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, it's been it's been uh, kind of a busy week. What with GDC, even though I wasn't there, I have to. You have to kind of isolate yourself from Twitter for. Oh, a few I know days. it's been horrible. All friends, colleagues, yeah, oh, they're all it's over been there. horrible. Everyone I follow is at GDC. Everyone is tagging themselves oh. as at GDC or at the PlayStation party or all this kind of thing, and I'm like, God damn it! I, I'm moving house and packing boxes. You guys are playing VR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to Richard Lamarchian talks as, as well, which which I which I love to do. So I, I'm incredibly jealous of everybody. So, so and been... and also. Yeah, and, yeah, and sorry, also carry on, yes. that, <laughs> <laughs> um, the VR and you know the PlayStation VR announcement. Was, yeah, I've had to do some stories on that for the newspaper, and I'm working on a VR little mini VR feature for Saturday's paper as well. Okay. So that's kind of all going on. So actually, yeah, quickly busy. while we're on the topic of VR, then I'm very interested to hear what you think of VR. What what have you tried? Have you tried the various the Oculus, the Vive, and the PlayStation VR? How, how do you sort of feel about VR, and is it this gimmicky thing or is it does it have the legs to actually carry itself yeah i yeah i mean i've tried all of them uh i've tried the vive uh google uh the, the just google cardboard samsung gear vr mm. oculus rift every step every iteration of the, yeah. the oculus rift um i think it's absolutely fascinating and it's one of those technologies that can really only be un- understood by trying it and i think that is um, going to be a key barrier, I think, for for consumer VR. Not only do people have this kind of culture shock of having a basically a crash helmet on their heads while they're sitting in yeah. their living rooms, people think that's kind of weird. Am I going to want to do that? Mm-hmm. There's also that sense of being immersed in a virtual computer generated environment is an experience. It's very difficult to comprehend until you've had it. And I think, you know, one of the key things that, that companies are going to have to do, and I think Sony are going to be probably best at this, is getting it into consumer hands. Um, I think there are kind of interesting parallels with the Wii, the Nintendo Wii, and that before that came out, lots of people were saying, what the hell is Nintendo doing? You know, this was after the GameCube, <laughs> uh, which didn't, which was had some amazing games, but didn't but do that didn't, well. It wasn't commercially as successful as Nintendo would have Ex- liked. No, and there were all these kind of op-eds and think pieces from people saying, oh, Nintendo's had it, what the hell is this thing? It looks like, you know, the Wii looks like a, a, a Fisher-Price toy with a television remote control attached to it. And then people started playing Wii Play and Wii Sport and they suddenly clicked and they got it. And not only did they click and not only did they get it, but their families, their yeah. grandparents, you know, their children got it. And there was this groundswell of, of purchases because people were going to parties, playing Wii, going home, wanting one. The price point was such that they could buy them. And, and, it, and, it, and it took off and it became a global phenomenon. I think virtual reality is going to need that groundswell, that, it's going to be very it. difficult for people to demo it because it's not exactly cheap. And unlike being able to like pass a controller or a Wii remote, being putting this sweaty <laughs> helmet basically on lots and lots of people, it's not going to be very yeah, easy. Yeah, no, to it's demo. not. It's not a passable. It's not a passable technology, really. I think this is one of the important things that Sony's doing with PlayStation VR. You know, they've got this kind of social screen approach in that the, uh, several of the games on there. Um, on their kind of demo selection that's going to go out with the yeah. with the headset, have a asynchronous multiplayer mode so that people can play on the television so and co-op play, play, play against. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have that sense that you're not isolated, that you're still a social human being. 
within it within a yeah um, it's very hard to describe because the only vr experience i've had myself was one of the first iterations of the oculus but even then i remember putting it on and just being like what is happening this is incredible because it's almost like you're locked in to a different world you there there is not a peak of light from the you know the real world and you are completely enclosed from left to right, up and down in this world. And it's very hard to yeah. describe to people exactly what the feeling is. And, and also, I think what a lot of people don't really understand maybe about neurology is that your brain very quickly adapts its own rules and its own way of perceiving reality to the physical evidence in front of it. Okay. So, you know, so you know, motion sickness is a, is a classic example of yeah. this in that, when, the, when there's a difference, a disparity between what the inner ear, the balance systems are telling the brain that it's, um, that it's seeing and, and your ocular system is telling you you're, you're, you're experiencing, yeah. you get motion sickness. Um, but within virtual reality... Um, that's probably the that's reason why a... when I played the Oculus, I played the roller coaster demo, one of the first roller coasters. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I remember being on the top peak of the, <laughs> of the roller coaster demo. And I remember my knees being weak because I have yeah. like slight vertigo like I am not great with heights so my knees start to feel a little bit weak when I get to certain heights but you know you're sat in a chair grounded but even mm. in the oculus I was having the feeling of being high up and my body was yeah. reacting to that but to, yeah exactly but to me the physiological element the motion sickness element isn't you know to me that's not as interest, I mean, that's going to happen, and a percentage of people are going to get motion sick because a percentage of people get motion sick on cross-channel ferries. What's interesting to me is how quickly your brain adapts to being in that environment and accepts the rules of the environment. So, as you say, you know, you will get vertigo because your brain thinks, "Okay, I am definitely on a in a, on a very high ledge now." Yeah. Therefore, so um, you know that happens quite quickly. I was playing a virtual reality demo by um, by Katie Good at Triangular Pixels at uh, the Game City Festival in Nottingham, where you are a secret agent who finds themselves in an enemy lair, and you've got to navigate your way through this lair. And it's um, and the virtual reality environment is mapped into the environment of the room that this um, installation-based VR uh, experience took place. Yeah. So you feel like you're in a real physical space, and wow. very quickly. Um, you accept the physical dimensions of the virtual world as your own. Uh, you, you, you accept and trust that world and you trust that you're not going to walk into a wall in the real world. And it's really fascinating, I think. And I think there's going to be... I mean, already developers are sort of talking about the, the, the um, psychological effects of being in worlds and the fact that, you know, one of the first... Um, one of the first things that developers found with virtual reality games was that you can't do what you usually do in 2D games in that you usually start with a big explosion and get people going straight away. You know, if you look at Grand Theft Auto or Uncharted, they're always like, boom, you're in. You're in yeah. the middle of the action. You cannot do that in virtual reality because people need almost like, it's almost like coming up from a deep sea diver, coming up from, you know, the bottoms of the ocean. Yeah. You need a moment halfway up to reacclimatize. That's what yeah, you just, you just need to slowly get yeah. used to this feeling in your brain telling you wow this is a new place these are new rules what's happening absolutely yeah absolutely you need to you need to have a sort of century tutorial um you know there's all these aspects of design i think are really interesting but what i think is fascinating is the capacity for our brains to uh to immediately accept this new reality and i think people are going to be quite 
I mean, fascinated, but also kind of scared by that. You know, I, I think um, yeah. horror games. Yeah, well, I was uh, just going to say, you know, when I think the about the possibility of horror games on VR, yeah. they s- yeah. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> I just, I just, <laughs> well, you know, no, thank you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, augmented reality, I think, is going to be that's a whole different conversation, but I think that's going to be fascinating and intrusive as well. But, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean... Playing, uh, I played very briefly uh, the Alien Isolation VR demo, which was a little bit glitchy here and there. But mm. oh my goodness me, it was <laughs> it was quite a thing. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. No, no, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. Give yeah. me like, give me like Eve Valkyrie, where I can have like dogfights and be like basically Luke Skywalker harnessing the power of the Force in a cockpit oh, yeah. or something yeah. like that that that's De- that's what i want to do i like the idea think, of um uh, is it insomniac that are creating like the dinosaur planet vr i'm i'm not sure there's like a, um, a robinson oh, crusoe type oh, yes. game oh is that no it's crytek yes oh crytek yeah crytek robinson the game yes, yeah yes. and then you get to like explore a dinosaur island essentially like Jurassic yes. Park, which is uh, that is cool it's scary yeah. if it's like a t-rex kind of thing but that's the kind of thing I want to do in VR. I want to like explore a world that is impossible in reality. Not yeah, essentially like a right. game, but more just experiences. I think that's what I, I'm looking for. Well, I think that's going to be what a lot of people are looking for. And I, I do think if virtual reality takes off, I think in, in the first instance, I think it's going to be short experiential games. So it'll be very much you are in a room and this is what, I mean, there'll almost be like those escape room games that are now popping up in cities all over the world. Yeah. The sense that you're in a room and you have to interact with that room and yeah. learn about it and, and, and figure out what's going on in that in that space. Because another important thing that virtual reality pioneers are discovering is that our sense of immersion is so profound in the virtual space that become we become much more interested in the minute of our environments. So like if you're in a room in Resident Evil, for example, you might have a you might have a quick look around, but what you want to do is progress. You want to get to the next room, the next corridor, and, and meet the next enemy. Yeah. Whereas if you in a virtual environment when you put the headset <laughs> on, you're in you're you're almost it's almost like being a baby again, and you're fascinated by the smallest details mm-hmm. of the room, uh, and it really changes your relationship with the environment. Um, I think games are going to have to use that, and they're going to be able to hide things and make you explore in a much more kind of profound and ah. intricate way. So, you know, I think games like uh, I don't know if you've seen um, Fireproof's game. Um, oh my goodness me, I've I've forgotten I've forgotten that the name of it. Hang on, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna Google it. <laughs> it's really obvious. The uh, the room, the room, uh, by, yeah, very by, obvious, very obvious. Yeah, the mo- is, um, the mobile game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is kind of like a puzzle game in which yeah. you have to manipulate this puzzle object. And that game really took advantage of the touch mechanics of the of the uh, the tablet to make you investigate an object which had lots of puzzles hidden within it. Yeah. I think you know maybe early virtual reality is going to work that way in that it's going to take advantage of your interest in the virtual environment to create puzzles which are very much about looking and investigating a very small space rather than having a massive world to explore yeah well talking about games and playing games forever (laughs) vr is this new horizon in gaming and everyone is kind of interested in what it's going to be like it does at the moment seem unless you try it, that it could be perceived as kind of gimmicky and is definitely something that you need to try. But 
who knows maybe when i'm doing this podcast in 20 years time anyone can boot up hundreds of different vr games to play <laughs> on their <laughs> island instead of a more traditional uh controller in hand type thing yeah but before we move on, I do want to talk about you, Keith, and I wanted to okay. ask you a few oh. questions because you are one of the UK's most respected writers and you have been around for such a long time. I don't want <laughs> to make you feel old by saying oh, yeah. that, but you are very much the veteran of the industry. I, I wanted to ask how you got started in the industry because obviously back when you started in the early 90s, gaming was a very different landscape to what it is like now. Yeah, definitely. Gaming and uh, writing about games were very yeah. different. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I mean, I did English. Uh, I've, I've always wanted to, I've, I think I've always wanted to be a journalist ever since I was like five or six. I've always wanted to write and I didn't, I didn't really know what about, but then I got into video games and, you know, um, my dad bought us at a ZX81 when they first came out and we did that usual thing of sitting and programming together. And um, so, and, I, and then we got a Commodore 64 and all I did throughout my teen years um was play video games i <laughs> really i hated school i i hated high school i hated um i wasn't very good with groups of men um so you know i, I found the social dynamic of school uh, in my teenage years really 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 difficult uh i was quite kind of uh, i was kind of alone a lot of the time okay. so video games are very much a source of uh, kind of interaction and, and and joy for me uh, in those dark in those dark times so I've always been really that's how you know video games uh, became such an important part of my life through my teen years yeah video yeah. games were kind of my Smith's albums in the, <laughs> you know, that was where I went uh, to to block yeah. out the rest of the world you know uh, so instead of you know instead of listening to reel around the fountain I was playing paradroid and <laughs> Ghibli's day out um <laughs> So you know, games have always been in my in my life. In that so way. was it a, nat a natural progression to writing about games then? Because did did you know about people who wrote about games? Did you think of that as a viable career at the time? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was um, I loved the magazine Zap, the Zap sixty four, which had writers like Julian Rignall and Gary Penn and Bob Wade, and they were just my absolute idols. I mean, very much the video game magazines of that time were very much the youtubers of uh, you know of that of that era in that they were very much about a community enjoying games you know it, even though they didn't have the internet and yeah. they weren't broadcasting to you they had very vibrant letters pages they had a very you had a very real sense of them as people you they were they were featured throughout the magazines there was that sense you were part of a community when you read something like zap or crash okay so, so the writers so, yeah. were a bit more of the not the focus but they were personalities within the Definitely. magazines yeah i mean they were very much personalities and, th and this was very much the driving force of video game journalism from the mid 80s to the mid 90s i would say this sense that these were enthusiasts they weren't really journalists they were kind of community heads and enthusiasts who were writing about games but also they were kind of the stars of the magazine and i you know i've since met lots of times gary penn uh, yeah. who's not only a great writer, but also, you know, an excellent thinker about games. And just to, you know, meet him and talk to him was just, it was like me meeting, uh, you know, it was like me, it was it was effectively like, I'll use the Smiths thing again, but meeting Morrissey. He was my Morrissey. Uh, I'm obsessed with Smiths this morning. Um, but, so kind, yeah. of, kind of like me talking to you today. 
um, but yeah so I, I but then i went to uh, i went to um university and i lived with um computer scientists two very very clever brainy computer scientists who managed to set up a local area network in our university accommodation in our in our, in our house in leamington um and we got so i got very into early networks local area network games like doom and wolfenstein yeah. and stuff like that um and during that time uh, one of my best friends I was working for a video game studio called Big Red, uh, Big Red Software that were based in Leamington. And um, during my university holidays, I had to make money to like a state university. And they said, "Why don't you come and work for us and write some manuals for us? Write, write some of the in-game text, some of the narratives for our games." So I, I said, "Yeah, that sounds great." So throughout my university career, this was like ninety-one to ninety-four. During my summer holidays, I would go and work at Big Red. And they're working on a game called Big Red Racing and a game called Tank Commander, but they also worked on stuff for Codemasters. So I, I ended up helping out a little bit with things like Micro Machines on the PC. Oh, and really? Also with, wow. Uh, yeah. And on the last uh, Dizzy Games as well, I, I had a, a, <laughs> worked a little bit on those. So, so yeah, and that, I mean, that, and that was valuable because um, I worked, when I left university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so I worked at Big Red for like six months afterwards. I wasn't really doing that much. I was kind of pitching games. I was designing games and and, and pitching them to Domark, who were our publisher at the time. Yeah. And coming up with these weird ideas and and just kind of thinking a lot about games and wasn't really sure what I was doing. And then I saw an advert for Staff Writer at Edge magazine. And I just thought, oh, shit, I should, I should, um, I'll give that a go. Why not? You know, it's something I can do for a year. And if I like it, maybe it'll last I don't know. And I didn't even think I'd get the job because I liked games, but I was a little bit behind. The new generation had started things like, you know, 3DO was out. PlayStation was just coming. Saturn was just coming. Okay. Um, And I was kind of not really up to date, but on my way, I can remember I got the train from Hemel Hempstead where where I was living with my parents uh, at the time to Bath. And I had a few copies of Edge and I just read them from cover to cover and kind of memorized it all. Um, so I went into the interview and, and I just and I kind of spewed everything I'd memorized. <laughs> uh, Trust me, the... I'm the guy. Look, I know yeah. all this about Edge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can remember like mentioning how disappointed I was with the um, with the PAL conversions of uh, Daytona and Ridge Racer, and uh, you know, <laughs> 50 frames a second. I didn't even know what I was talking about. But, <laughs> but one thing I've always been really kind of good at is like learning systems really really quickly and learning what what concerns people and working out how i can explore that yeah um you know so i've been, always been really really good at systems and understanding how systems work and i understood the system of the games industry in the mid 90s and so i can i could talk about that quite authoritatively and then i had a writing test and the, the editor um, jason brooks said okay you've got an hour just write a review of any game that you've been playing so i wrote a review of XCOM. Um, um, and it was the second XCOM. It was the Enemy Below, or uh, I can't remember what it was. Yes, the, the, the one under the, the, the one in the water. Yes, Aliens yeah. Under the Water. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote a few of that, and I got the job based on that what I wrote. So um, that's how I got to Edge, and I started there in October 1995. No, I think it was actually it was it was, it was earlier than that because it was the October issue, uh, issue 27. It had Sega Rally on the cover, uh, one of the greatest racing games ever made. And I stayed there for two years and was features editor. And it was a brilliant, confusing, bewildering, 
exhausting introduction to games journalism because there's no <laughs> other there's no other magazine quite like edge um, and jason brooks ran it like a mini development studio in that we would have a week we had three three and a half week um production schedules the first week of that would just be us sitting around playing games and talking about games the second week would be us kind of planning the flat plan for the next issue and then it was the third week where we'd actually start actually doing stuff and we'd have like a, a mini crunch period of three days where we'd yeah. sleep for an hour a night <laughs> <laughs> that i will admit that does sound really fun yeah it was it was great days i mean it was brilliant because i was in my early 20s and i'd come out of university and i was i loved university i had an amazing time and so unlike it was so unlike school and i felt like i could be myself and met really great people uh, and made really great friendships and i was kind of devastated when i had to leave university and to to go into video games journalism which (laughs) You know, which is lots of young people in their twenties messing yes. around playing video games, getting drunk. Uh, it, you know that that was game journalism in the in, you know in the in the early nineties and mid nineties. So it was amazing. It was just joining another community uh, again, and I just found it um, kind of so rewarding and comfortable. Um, being in Bath and Bath, such a beautiful city, uh, it was it was kind of wonderful and. I was playing the best games at that time. It was the glory days of, you know, Sega versus play, you know, Saturn versus PlayStation and Namco versus Sega. So we were getting Virtua Fighter versus Tekken and Ridge yeah. Racer versus Daytona. Oh wow! So you know, and seeing those games coming in, I can remember Virtua Fighter Two coming into the office, and they w- they couldn't leave it with us, so they downloaded it onto the system, and we didn't turn the Saturn off for um, for two weeks. So that we could keep playing for a Trevor too, and you know, we, it was just, it was just a really interesting time, and we were seeing the birth of so many big uh, games. You know, we had Core Design come in to show us a very, very early build of Tomb Raider, which was just basically this very, very basic polygonal figure of Lara Croft climbing over wire-framed. Um, cavern backgrounds backdrops yeah and they they showed us like a five minute demo and i remember standing there with our production editor and the editor jason brooke was watching this and we just thought wow this this is the we just saw something in it just that there was a section we saw with lara croft pulling herself up onto a ledge and running (laughs) off and it just just thought this is the future this is going to be absolutely massive it was just we just understood with just that smallest moment of the demo what this game is going to be i can can remember it really clearly i can remember spending two like a whole night in the office playing resident evil with all of us with the whole editorial team uh and the art team standing around the computer as one of us was we took it in turns to play the first resident evil and just you know jumping screaming (laughs) enjoying uh just enjoying this really interesting new genre um it was just an amazing formative time because i think yeah, I mean, you know, for the first time, I think, in the PlayStation and Saturn era, it was the era when developers were moving away from the arcade roots of games. Yeah, and, and realizing pushing that, the home console. Yeah, you know, the experience of having an adventure, a lot yeah. of, you know, having a whole world to explore um, was just coming into play then, you know. So, you know, we were getting, obviously, the final, we'd had games like Dragon's Quest and Final Fantasy, and RPGs have been exploring massive huge worlds for years but yeah. i think developers like namco and sega and capcom and konami were only just 
thinking, hey, we don't have to make these games experienceable in like two minutes. We don't have to charge. We're not, you know, we're not charging yeah. them ten minutes ago anymore. Uh, we can give them much bigger experiences. So wow. um, yeah, it was a fascinating time. That's amazing. That's really incredible to hear stories from that time, considering especially where we are now in gaming and how incredibly popular it is. It's yeah. almost stories about when things changed around that time because you know getting towards like 94 95 is when like the whole face of gaming changed with 3d and that kind of thing i think those kind yeah. of stories are almost lost to time a little bit because yeah is a I lot mean, you've got twitch and youtube and that kind of thing in games almost games almost come and go very quickly <laughs> now a lot more than they did then where you know you could have a game that would be released in japan but wouldn't come out for two years in europe and you would have this build up until the game came out and then when the game came out you know people didn't really have that much money to spend on games so they would buy like one game and they would play it for like two years whereas now yeah. games come and go very very fast although we you know one nice thing that has happened is this whole kind of let's play community has a al- has allowed people to explore games in much more depth than than we yeah. ever could like in video games journalism at the time you know i've talked about this in the past it was kind of like a production line of news, previews, reviews, tips, and then the game was gone. You couldn't talk about it anymore. There was no way within the structure of nineties. Just wouldn't games. fit in. No, you just because you were you were. It was almost like you were fulfilling a consumer service. We were very much dictated by the by the you know the marketing regimes almost yeah. of the of the of the games publishers. Um, we were we were essentially providing a, a consumer service. We were you know so um, it was very different. Whereas now you know you can write about games that are a couple of years old um, because they're still out there. Um, you know, yeah, you've got a, games you know like World of Warcraft, League of Legends, Eve, yeah, where people are still playing them today, and there's new that, things because of technology. They get expansions and they're still relevant mm. and that kind of thing, and they have big user bases. Yeah, and I just think the whole culture of games has changed as well. I think we've we understand now that games are important to us on lots of different levels: emotional, um, psychological, social. Uh, you know, they're fun. They they are fun. And, and I loved Simon Miller's interview when he was talking about how you know this is just fun. These games are fun, but they're not. But to me, uh, you know, I don't want to disagree with Simon Miller too much because um, <laughs> he could beat me up. He, he, um, would, but, he would tear yeah, us both in half. I think. <laughs> yeah, tear us limb from limb, <laughs> and then make a hilarious uh, video about it. He would, yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> and people would think it was like cheesy special effects, but <laughs> it'd actually be us tearing apart. <laughs> that would be that would be it. That would be terrifying. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, I think yes, games are fun, but there's so there's lots more going on as well. I think yeah, uh, you know, our appreciation of games depends on us understanding a lot of how they work. You know. Um, when you understand why games do what they do, I think it just enriches your enjoyment. It increases yeah, the fun if you really think so. about games. So, well, yeah. speaking of loving games, I think we better jump into your games that you're going to talk about today that you've chosen for your okay. deserted place that we will get to in a bit. So, we're going to move on to your first game in the list, and we're going to listen to some music from that.
Okay, Keith. So to kick things off, you've actually chosen a game that is pretty replayable. It's the game developed by Firaxis Games and published by 2K that was released in September of 2010. I can't believe it's that old already for PC. <laughs> it was directed by acclaimed and respected game designer that is Sid Meier. And it's received two expansions since then. It's Civilization V. So Keith, please tell me why Civilization V is the first game on your list today. Well, I have been a i would i could say fan i could also see i could also say a victim of the civilization series <laughs> um since uh, i reviewed civilization 2 for edge um and i've often told this story that i almost got fired from edge because i sneakily spent the whole of one product magazine production period playing civilization for a two-page review when I was actually supposed to be writing 20 other pages that month and it got to the end of the month. And Alice said to me, where's the other 20 pages? And I said, well, I don't know, but here's a great review of Civilization. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I chose Civilization Five just because it does, because it's, I think it does quite interesting things. Uh, it makes a few differences to to the game. Obviously, it, it um, has a new engine and it, it introduces hexagonal tiles, which kind of yes. makes military engagements more complex and interesting but i kind of chose it just really because it's the latest because i felt it was the most interesting latest iteration of a series i can't believe it's already almost six years old i know it's incredible that's you know that's still to this day one of the most played games on steam yeah yeah and i think you know Really, for me, I just wanted a Civilization game on here. Uh, it could it could have been anything from Civilization Two onwards, and I just yeah. think what Sid Meier understands about games is that they are sandboxes for the player's imagination and experimentation. So Civilization has an aim that you have to achieve. You either have to you know get, go into space or, or win as a as a, yeah. as a as a military victor. But when you enter a game, it's very similar to uh, SimCity uh, by Real Right. You have this sense of experimentation. So you think, okay, I'm going to build a city near the ocean, see what happens. Or I'm going to build a city on an island and see what happens. I'm going to start by building a granary. I'm only going to learn about writing. I'm only going to learn about military-themed things. So you have all these things. You set yourself up hypothetical questions or... You do kind of create your own narrative almost because the game doesn't have a narrative, but you're still spanning generations of stories of different times and eras. Yes. So it it says to you, here is a... an experiment it's like a chemistry set of human civilization and do with it what you want mix the <laughs> mix the liquids together sometimes they'll explode in your face uh and, but sometimes it will go blue a beautiful shade of blue um but yeah it's that it's that approach to game design which um respects and almost reveres the gamer and says this is an experience we have made do with it what you will and i just think that's wonderful and there are so many lessons. I mean, Sid Meier and his team thought so deeply about the whole philosophy of human evolution. Um, so there's so much information in there if you're interested in working out how humans went from these um, wandering tribes to industrialized societies. You can learn that in civilization. It teaches you. You can it's very accurate in how certain technologies lead to other technologies. Yeah. So, you know, it's educational in a really profound way. It's a very interesting way in that it teaches yeah. you the dynamics uh, of, of scientific and technological progression. 
so it's really fascinating um i think you know if i'm isolated somewhere away from humanity i'll still want to think about them and you know what better way to think about uh, humanity than being able to control with it. yeah <laughs> what better way than to be able to control your own your own version of humanity uh, so yeah that's why civilization is there and i always i actually always went for the military victory in the end um because uh, because i don't know why I, I i'm quite intrigued by violence i suppose <laughs> i think it's one of those things it's always tempting once you build incredible mm. technology with tanks and you have jets and then eventually you get like the nuclear bomb yeah you have to sit on it and not use it if you want certain victories like space race victory or un victory you have to not do anything with it and it's almost <laughs> yeah. it's almost too tempting at the end of the day this is why to not use people- it yeah, this is why normal people can't become presidents um, <laughs> because, you know, sitting there with that red button at the end of your desk, it's just so tempting to push it. Um, you know, this is, the, this is the great terror that's looming in front of us now with Donald Trump. Yeah, I was just going to gonna say, uh, I White can imagine House. him sitting there with a big, a big, like not even like a normal red button. He'd have to have like a big red button. He'd that means he could press it with two hands and just have fun ruining yes. the world for everyone. He would... He would quite happily fire humanity. <laughs> he uh, is essentially playing one big game of Civilization Five. Yep, we are. We are. Humanity is the apprentice in this scenario, <laughs> um, which is devastating. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. So but this is. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So did you play? Uh, did you play the two expansions that came after? No, I'm not. Like, I'm not really a big expansion player. I have to admit. I'm a little bit old school um, and I see that experience is fully formed and there's definitely been some expansion packs that I've played, but I kind of like, I sort of enjoy the purity of the original experience. And the thing with civilization is you can always go back and play in, you know, in so many different ways Yeah, that I didn't really feel the need to, to progress beyond it. Yeah. yeah I think, it, yeah, exactly. I think when there's a really interesting narrative, behind an expansion like the obvious example being the last of us and you know ellie's story um left behind which gets added which is added after the um the main game i think that's really interesting because it expands your understanding of that world but yeah i'm not Whereas really civilized it, uh, like it's uh gods and kings and a brave new world which added like a brave new world added a bit more modern I forget, like more infrastructure. I think more yeah, to yeah. run a bit more like a sim game, like a city I think sim so. kind of game. With, and then Gods yeah. and Kings was more characters um, to play as or against, um, which yeah. is not like building upon narrative or any way. It's more just giving you playable options, which is very different yes. to the kind of DLC or expansions that you're talking about with Left Behind in The Last of Us. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, um, I think there was some like tweaking of trade routes and stuff like that, but it didn't really, yeah, it didn't really interest me. Like, I would rather play a different, I'd rather play a whole different game than than um, play expansion packs. And I, I, there's plenty for me to discover in Civilization Five. Maybe if I'm spending the rest of eternity by myself, I will rue the day I said that I don't play expansion packs. Maybe there'll be a point <laughs> in my future. Maybe. Where I think, oh, well, God, I you wish- just in case, just in case. It's up to you, but we will give you the physical discs of the two expansions so that 
you know in in 30 years time when you're still stuck in this deserted place you might want to move on to the expansions that might profoundly change my relationship (laughs) with expansion packs i actually i actually might still have copies lying around because i remember when a long time ago when i was an intern at GameSpot, i was talking about civilization 5 and the expansion um gods and kings which just came out at the time and I was saying that I really enjoyed Civilization V and I wanted to play Gods and Kings. And then um, one of the PR people at 2K was wonderful enough to send me an, an unholy amount of copies of the expansion <laughs> yeah. to play with friends. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> for weeks afterwards just having copies of Civilization V and Gods and Kings lying around <laughs> everywhere <laughs> in my apartment. So I think I may have may still have copies of that game to give you for this. Oh wow! Okay, well that's great. Uh, then we can test and see how wrong I am. <laughs> that expansion packs. Well, yeah. Civilization off definitely offers the replayability that you would want on a deserted yeah. place as well. So definitely. I think I think for a first choice, it's a very very strong choice, which is great. <laughs> so we're going to move on to a very similar kind of game in terms of replayability and almost simulation and next. So let's listen to some music. Okay, Keith, so before we move on to your next game, um, mm-hmm. there is this part of the show now where you get to choose the deserted place that you're stuck in. But the rule is that it has to be from video games. Okay. So you have to sort of think about everything in a way like it's deserted, so there's no like human NPCs, but there p- potentially could be monsters maybe. Uh, we had Andy Kelly who chose uh, the... Um, the ship from Alien Isolation, which is okay, not the greatest I mean... of choices. He did ask that <laughs> I remove the alien beforehand, but oh, what chicken! I can't guarantee that I did. So Andy right. is somewhere in space now with an alien <laughs> on the Nostromo. I'd watch that movie. I'd, I'd watch that movie. <laughs> Andy Isolation. <laughs> <laughs> just him trying to play uh euro truck simulator while avoiding aliens <laughs> do you, i wonder if they'll do they should do like a european space agency simulation where andy could just roam the galaxy uh, i think that would be amazing <laughs> he did choose eve online so technically it's almost well, that's it, it. yeah yeah and we yeah. had uh danny o'dwyer um a couple of weeks ago from GameSpot who chose the island from the witness Oh, yeah, nice. Very yeah. peaceful, very peaceful. And we had uh, one of your freelancers at The Guardian, Holly Nielsen, last week, 
and she chose the world from Okami, which is okay. technically Japan, but the very, very beautiful yeah. version of Japan. So thinking about if you had to be deserted there forever, well, for the rest of your days with these games, what comes to your mind instantaneously? Uh, um, the uh, I think uh, well, there's t- actually there's there's two a good a good one and a stu- and, and a bad one. <laughs> okay. I would like uh, um, uh, the the island of Proteus, Ed Key's uh, game Proteus, the island in that. I think that would be kind of a beautiful place to yeah, be. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Danny Danny from Gamespot could... did did nearly pick that, but he thought the uh-huh. pixel the pixelated nature maybe would be too much for his eyes. I don't know. I think that would be kind of it would be almost like being in limbo in a, in a way. I think yeah. that would be useful. But it, you'd have to have the procedurally generated soundtrack as well, so that everywhere you went had a kind of sa- had a beautiful audio feedback to it. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, so I, you know, that would I I think I would kind of enjoy that because you get the freedom to be in an environment which is kind of gorgeous and peaceful, and there's going to be no alien. You can't you can't put an alien in there because that's not going <laughs> to you know that that's not going to happen. I think. <laughs> I'd be like uh, be like Tom Hanks in Castaway. Okay, um, and I'd probably end up befriending one of like the crabs that sometimes come onto the beach or something like that. Yeah. Um, but the other one would be uh, Aperture Science Labs. I think that would be kind of fascinating. Ah, okay. <laughs> with uh, with Glados, um, I, I you know dueling with Glados for the rest of time. I think would be pretty amazing. You reckon you could make Glados your friend? Do you reckon? I think I think maybe I could win around somehow. I don't know. But I think I is this also know, dependable on whether you had the portal gun or not? Oh, definitely. I'd need a portal gun. It's okay. absolutely it's absolutely dependable on that because I would be messing around with the physics of that. I would probably actually kill myself. On the <laughs> I was going to say you would probably injure yourself <laughs> pretty quickly. I think you would <laughs> yeah. shoot underneath your feet, then shoot create... somewhere else, and not realize yeah. how much of a drop it is, and exactly. break you your ankles. Dropping... You could set it so you just drop forever. That, wouldn't that be a terrible way? You'd starve to death while you were falling forever. That's, that would be pretty bad. That's true. Yeah. You that would have like a PC bad. with you to play Civilization Five, though, so you'd be like constantly <laughs> yeah. rotating while just playing a game of Civ, suspended yeah. in time and space. See, that would that would be that's the kind of ending I have that I would think that I would suffer. I, I, <laughs> that, that's, that's that's how I'd go, I think. But yeah, I think a very apt I, way to go for a video game writer of twenty years. <laughs> yeah, trapped in a Mobius circle of of falling. That would that would be my way of going out. But I love um, Valve. Just makes amazing environments. Yeah, that I would you know I think it'd be fascinating to explore. Um, and I'd find out as well. I'd, I'd I'd find out about the cake, and I'd find out more about the background of the story. Um, so yeah, I would. That would be kind of fascinating. To so me. we're saying. So we're saying Aperture Labs then. Oh, Over Proteus. I know. I'm going to say Proteus. I'm going to say because because just I'll be to be safe. safe is that is that yeah. is that so you can stay alive at least because for a little bit to play these games? Exactly. I I I think I would like to be safe. Okay. In a beautiful. <laughs> place <laughs> rather than risking um the first day on there um making a portal beneath me and above me and then spending the next three days uh falling <laughs> fair enough okay so the island from proteus is the place where you were deserted for the purpose of today mm-hmm. so one of the next games that you've chosen for the island of proteus is sims 4 
which was yes. developed by Maxis and published by EA and released in September of 2014 for PC. It's the fourth game in the popular Life Simulator series, and it's actually one of the lowest rated games in the series as it received quite a bit of controversy on release because there were some features cut from the game that had been in Sims 3. So, Keith, yes. please tell me why Sims 4 over maybe Sims 3, for example. Well, um, I didn't play an awful lot of sims 3 because it came out in a period that i was really really super busy doing other stuff so i didn't really get a chance to experience it and also because there were so many additions to the basic gameplay because there were so many expansions and because there were so many kind of complex things you could do in it i almost felt like inhibited by sims 3 where sims 4 i felt like it was a really it was kind of for me it was a really fresh start and a fresh way to re-engage with the game. And we played uh, the original Sims when I was freelancing for Edge and just had an amazing time discovering that game. I mean, it was so different from anything else. Um, It was so amusing. The whole idea of a virtual soap opera. And the first thing we did was create a household of us on the Edge team. So, um, (laughs) So, you know, everybody in Edge was represented in our Sims household and, you know, hilarity ensued. Uh, which often involved bullying the art editor and locking him in a room with no bathroom or throwing him in the swimming pool, you know, that kind of hijinks. Um, So I kind of, I I sort of saw Sims 4 in a way, like returning to the purity of that game, but also with a much more advanced social simulation side to it. And I was like, I've been lucky enough to interview Maxis before Sims 4 came out in quite some depth. So I got to know quite a, a lot about the artificial intelligence procedures behind that game. Um, and so for me, the lack of some of the modes and possibilities in the previous game weren't really a barrier. It, it was more, um, I just felt it kind of brought a purity to the experience. And I love how complex the behaviors are in that game and how the ais respond to each other i just find it fascinating to watch and it's it's graphically very very kind of attractive um and yeah i mean i just i played that game solidly for a week and all i did was make households and watch and what i'd love to do was make um i think this was a period when we were getting a lot of those kind of um kind of forced semi-reality documentaries coming out you know we were first got like this is essex and uh, you know and geordie shaw oh, and stuff like okay yeah early ways essex, the reality so. type shows with people like, yeah living together those kind in of house. reality soap operas and so i you know i was creating these houses uh full of complex interrelationships um you know lots of love affairs um and i just found it fascinating and interesting but also they're kind of really sort of profound moments there was one occasion i had a household where um there were lots of interrelationships and lots of kind of uh, uh um straight relationships gay relationships lots of lots of stuff going on it was really interesting but okay. there was one moment where th- there was two women in the house that were in a relationship and they just loved to talk these characters just talked and talked and talked that's all they did and i i was just what i just watched them and they would go out to work and they'd come back and they'd talk and there was one day where one of them was just getting her breakfast and uh, she she needed the toilet. So she took her breakfast into the toilet while she was talking to her, her, her lover <laughs> and the lover just followed her in. So I had this brilliant moment where uh, the characters chatting away and one of them is just sitting on the toilet eating her breakfast. I just thought, 
what a kind of wonderful metaphor for human intimacy <laughs> and human relationships. That it, you know, there's just this ridiculous moment in the game where these women just l- like love talking so much that they saw no barrier to one of them sitting on the toilet eating her breakfast. It was just, yeah, we'll just continue these conversations because yeah, it's let's fun. just let's just take this over there, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is fine. I just thought. I just found that kind of really beautiful. I just found it really moving that these people loved each other so much that they were comfortable in that space. And, uh, you know, how many games really kind of do that or can do that? Give us those moments where you think, wow, that's that kind of says something about human relationships, that when you really love someone and you're really intimate, you can do that sort of thing. You're comfortable with each other in that way. I just found it. Yeah, I found it really moving. And it was funny but, you know, the best things in life are often funny and tragic at the same time. You know, the best, all the best drama is funny and tragic. That's why Coronation Street is so much better than EastEnders. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because life is part humour, part tragedy, and often the two mix. They're not two sides of the same coin. They're the same side <laughs> of the coin. So, you know, I love the way that The, the Sims has always reflected that, but I found the the more complex AI of Sims 4 and the graphical representation of Sims 4 brought out those elements a lot better. Um, So, yeah, I just think it's a really, really fascinating game. And like Civilization, of course, it's a game where you set up lots of experiments. It's just that the experiments you set up in Sims 4 are more social and more inter-social, more about relationships than they are about the rise of man as this kind of, as this abstract uh, construct. Uh, yeah. It's much more about what happens when you put an astronaut in a house with a cleaner and an actor uh, who will fall in love. How can I manipulate these relationships? Who's going to do the tidying up? Um, yeah, I just find it interesting. And all the things when I spoke to Maxis, they're fascinated, too, by all the ways that people exploit and manipulate almost sadistically the characters in the games. You know, so you'd get people who. <laughs> you know, you've probably heard these stories of people who set up households where one of the families locked in a basement producing paintings. They are they are basically a painting farm, and these paintings are then sold to um, support the <laughs> well, rest. I of the ha- well, I kind of told it. I kind of have a story about that that I told uh, last week when I was speaking to Holly Nielsen, uh, who mm-hmm. chose Sims Two for her oh, okay. deserted place, and it was kind of like a a quickly brief story where. Um, a friend of mine uh, used to have someone take women down to the basement, paint them, then put the painting on the wall, then kill them, and, then go, go, oh. and he rinse and repeat until like the wall was full of all these paintings of the faces of the, wow. of, the of his victims, and it was that, one of those no. weird sim stories. Yeah, but that's you know that is just, that, you know the capacity for a game to have great brightness and great darkness mm. is amazing. Um, you know, a lot of games they try to build these kind of moral gauges into them. You know, Lionhead has always been kind of obsessed with this idea of morality in video games. So, you know, lots of games have these kind of moral, good, light, uh, dark, bad sides that they try to play with. And they often get it. They're often nowhere near nuanced enough to reflect human behavior. Um, So, you know, something like The Sims, where you could have a character who goes to work, gets on with their gets on with almost everyone else in their household, but yet still um paints and murders women <laughs> in the basement um that's more that's much more of a, of a profound statement about human morality yeah. than any kind of 
good bad, bad gauge you know in most action games okay. so, so well, that's why well, with about. with the first two games on your list you've chosen two games that uh uh almost uh, i wouldn't say scientific looks into humanity but definitely they are pseudo realities that reflect you know real human um, uh, emotions and personalities and that kind of thing is this your yeah. kind of way of clinging onto humanity while you're in <laughs> the deserted island of proteus I think, yeah i think so it will make me feel involved in humanity um i think and also i really do i'm really interested in the systems of, of relationships um and how we get on with each other or don't get on with each other. And so, you know, I've, I've, for me, The Sims and Civilization are just really interesting experiments in humanity. And so, yeah, I feel like I'm interested in them now, even though I'm around people all the time. I think I would be doubly interested. I think that would be a kind of um, a way of having a virtual relationship with humans again. So... Oh. Yeah, and because I was, I was sort, I was sort of thinking about, you know, oh, should I put Tamagotchi on there? Um, because at least that would give you something to care for. But I think I'd get quite sick of that after. But you kind of have to look after yourself. In yeah, exactly. You, you, you don't know what to expect in this deserted place, so you're exactly. almost like your own Tamagotchi. You have to yeah. take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So you're a living Tamagotchi. Um, <laughs> Uh, when you're alone that is, that is very true <laughs> profound comment on life <laughs> <laughs> well it's very interesting to see that these two choices uh, you know they're games that people may think that you've chosen for more like replayability because that's what a lot of people go for on this podcast yeah. more replayability but the, the it's very intriguing to hear you talk about the, why these games are important to you because of the way they present relationships i've never really thought mm. about that before which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I am, you know, being a, a human being who has had relationships, I find, I find them fascinating. <laughs> and also I have a very, I do have a very systemic way of thinking about things. Um, I don't know where that comes from, but that's just the way I am. And so I like games like Civilization and The Sims have kind of helped me in a way <laughs> analyze and think about um relationships um in a way that perhaps listening to pop music or watching films may for other people or reading literature um so you know i feel like i just read jane eyre which i think is like a is almost like a really fascinating simulation of someone discovering their inner life and how they see the world you know, Jane Eyre, I see as almost game-like in that the lead character realises that she's a functioning, sentient being with passions of her own yeah. that are quite separate from her upbringing. And you get a sense of this happening to her and you really get, you really in her head and all, you almost feel as though you are not guiding, but like experiencing that growth. And I think that's what amazing simulation games can do uh so i have i just called jane Eyre like a simulation video game yeah I guess kind I, of <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it kind of is except it's not interactive it's sort of like it it's like the first walking sim um like, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. the first so firewatch the first <laughs> vanishing of ethan carter was jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah everybody's gone to rochester's mansion like it's, it's that sort of thing uh, so are you are you saying that your ultimate game 
ever would be like a VR Sims where you could be the person in there experiencing the relationships almost like being a catalyst to cause relationships yeah. as well maybe i think in a lot of ways it probably would like i'm really fascinated by emily short's um uh, versu um uh, interactive uh, ai fiction experiment on um, iphone yeah um and you know um emily short and her um co-writer created this system where of AIs that could, which were sentient within um, a narrative environment. And so you could explore the kind of relationships between characters and engage with them. And I just thought, you know, imagine that in a virtual world. I just, yeah, I found that interesting. I mean, I th- I, human humans like love watching other humans. That's why we're quite prepared to watch things like Gogglebox and um, The Only Way is Essex. Uh, well, and speak for yourself interact. because I absolutely despise <laughs> those kind of well, shows. You're, yeah, you are in a reasonable minority there. Um, but you know, even we're interested in just watching what's happening around around us. Yeah, we're, we're interested in in our environments and in our neighbours and what they're up to. So I think you know, yeah, you could say that the ultimate virtual reality thing would be a virtual reality so proper would be the sims 4 rendered as a living or organic environment within a you know computer generated yeah. um, simulation definitely although at the same time i do really really like shooting stuff and not thinking <laughs> so um, well as we can definitely choices, it will show well we're moving on to a bit more of the uh not romancing or making friends more cutting people down where they stand because (laughs) they're there to be slaughtered maybe (laughs) or the next list of games are very much uh, a change (laughs) from the more philosophical thought uh, video (laughs) games (laughs) so we're going to move on to your next game and so we're going to listen to some music Okay, Keith, so the next game on your list is the oldest game on the list and one you've chosen for pure nostalgia. It's the space trading game originally developed by Aconsoft and directed by David Braeburn and Ian Bell that was released on the 20th of September 1984. It's been released on a whole host of platforms including the BBC Micro, the Acorn Electron, the Apple II, the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, the Amiga and even the NES. It's Elite, the original space trading game. Keith, please tell me why Elite is well, on the list. You have to imagine being a twelve-year-old in ninety. I think I was twelve in nineteen eighty-four, 
and I had grown up playing either translations of arcade games or really, really bad knockoff translations of arcade games. So I played things like instead of Donkey Kong, I was, you know, on my Commodore 64, I was playing things like Crazy Kong and, and uh, <laughs> I just and like Snack Man and things like that. I know they were great, interesting games but they were very much arcade experiences or platform experiences, you know, things like Manic Miner, yeah. Jet Set Willy. They were great. They were fun. They were nuggets of incredible entertainment. But then Elite came along and it just blew my tiny mind. Um, it was just incredible because it offered you a, a galaxy to live in and to exist in and to decide what you wanted to be within that environment. It put you in a spaceship where you could fight other spaceships, but you could also exist by trading or by mining. It was up to you, or you could combine all three. And I just, it was just incredible to me. And I'd grown up watching, obviously being obsessed with Star Wars. And I was playing with Star Wars. This is one of the reasons I didn't get on very well in, in school, because I was playing with Star Wars figures until I was about 14. Um, <laughs> I grew up incredibly slowly. I loved Star Wars figures. I loved imagining myself in that world. And then to have a game like Elite, which just said, here's a galaxy, you're in a spaceship, you've got 200 credits, uh, see ya, uh, was just, you know, amazing. It was incredible. And I would just spend night after night after I'd done my homework exploring the galaxy, going from planet to planet, writing down. I had a notebook of trade routes with all the best things to trade. Uh, so I created my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I wish I still had that. But I would, yeah, I would write down, you know, this is a good place. You know, this is an agricultural planet that really, really need these things. Uh, this is a high tech planet. Uh, this is a really good trade route because it's very quite short and I can make money quickly. Uh, I really imagined that I was in that. I was in that environment. And even just stupid things like... Um, like the music, obviously it plays the Blue Danube when you put the docking computer on. And it was just beautiful to sit there. And my, my Commodore 64 was in our, we had a little dining room when I, I was living in um, Stockport in Cheshire at the time. We had this little dining room, quite echoey little room with tile floors. And I would sit in there by myself with the Commodore 64 on a reasonably big screen and watch as my computer, uh, my, my computer generated craft, um, got closer and closer and closer to this polygonal space station as the strains of Blue Danube played in the background and felt like I was there. It was really transformative and just, yeah, it was just wonderful. Just wonderful thing. I loved it. And I created my own character in my head, <laughs> you know, who I was and what I was doing and what I wanted to get out of my life in the cosmos and again, like I've spoken a lot about escape. It was just an amazing sense of being somewhere completely different. And almost the graphical, uh, this the vector graphics, which was so simple, made it all the more compelling because you could imprint onto it your own imagination of what these ships really looked like and what yeah. these people were doing. And when you met, you know, when you, um, when you got into fights with pirates in space, you you imprinted onto it your own story that's what i loved about it. you know i was very I was, I was for a long time i was really into championship manager as well and what i loved about that was that you were telling your own football stories you were telling your own warrior of the rovers stories essentially uh and i think that's what elite did it allowed you to create your own science fiction stories 
And it was just at the time, it was just absolutely incredible. Like there were there had been like some open world games before, you know, Paul Wokes' games, um, things like Mercenary, which use vector graphics as well and give you a bigger sense of a of a universe. So they they were around at that time, but Elite just offered so many different degrees and levels of freedom. I just found it just profoundly interesting and um i don't know uh, it like I, I keep saying this but i was having such a bad time at school and you know the thought of getting away getting into my craft and trading between planets in a distant galaxy was kind of what got me through double maths and got me through um like uh, bullying and loneliness uh, you know people don't think about games uh, in, in sometimes people don't think about the, the really positive aspects of games and so, that for me so was really positive even in the lonely void of space you felt a bit more not yeah. alive or that kind of thing but like uh, there was more going on than there was yeah in the real i world. could imprint yeah i could imprint something onto it that was mine and that i had control over and it may it sort of it made me feel part of a it made me feel engaged in a universe that worked that was interesting and exciting and was full of potential and possibility and it, and and adrenaline and and these are things like i don't you know live a lonely teenager in a craft uh, in sort of a tory infested small town on the very fringes <laughs> of manchester uh, you know i didn't I, that wasn't what i was experiencing at that time so you know it was partly like i escaped in two ways like I escaped through video games but i also escaped through like i was really into hip-hop music as well at the time and it sounds really weird but to me that was an escape as well because i was listening to music that was coming from the bronx and was coming from the streets of you know um south central los angeles yeah places that i had no understanding of but I felt through the music of like African Mambata and later through NWA, I was like experiencing these worlds which were so unlike the world that I was existing in. It was so boring and mundane and middle class and lonely that I really used mu- like music for me. Hip hop music for me was very similar to video games uh, in that they allowed me to experience a life far distant, galaxies away from the life that I was experiencing in real life. So let me ask you then, because you've chosen Elite, the original. How did you feel about Elite Dangerous? Obviously, it was directed as well by David Braben. Yeah. What was it about I Elite mean, Dangerous that didn't quite make that on the list? Because obviously, that is a fully realized universe almost. It is, yeah. I mean, I found it really, really impressive, definitely. Yeah. But um, for me, the layers of complexity took it beyond an imaginative simulation towards a kind of technical simulation of what it would be to be in space. I can remember my first experience of it and I got I got hold of, I borrowed a, a proper full-on Cytec joystick to play it with. <laughs> and my first five hours of that game were getting stuck in the in the you know in the in the docking area of a space station. And it was about that. Do you remember? I don't know if you've ever seen the film Austin Powers, and there's that moment he's in that little golf cart yep. and he gets stuck in a corridor and he just goes forward and back and forward and back. <laughs> that was like basically me for my first four hours, <laughs> dangerous. Um, and I just think it ramped up the complexity to a level that 
lots of fans of like you know things like Eve really wanted and really uh, really needed. Yeah. But for me, the level of complexity that was in the original um, in the original game, which was basically uh, a quick shot to joystick and a few buttons on a keyboard, that was enough for me, and that allowed me the space to make up everything else myself. So the complexity was more about imagination than actual technical or physical complexity. So although I was fascinated by it, and I thought I would love it. In the end, it was just too dense for me to really get into. Okay. And now, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a parent. I've got two kids. I can't spend I can't spend four hours getting to grips with a control system of a spacecraft that doesn't exist. Um, I've got <laughs> kids that do exist that I've got to get to grips with. So, have you got yeah, to grips I, with them? Please tell me you've got to grips with kind them. Of, kind yeah, of, kind you know, of. It's, always, it's, a, it's an ongoing project. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I'm sure of, I won't be having more ex- any expansion packs to this family. That's that's for sure. Two is definitely enough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was too. I mean, it was too much. It was too much for me. I, I suspect if I was in my twenties now. Uh, you know, starting out in games journalism, I yeah. would be, I would definitely go for Eve or Elite Dangerous. But yeah, there was there's something about the purity of the first Elite that is un- kind of unforgettable. I think. I, I I'm 25 and I still don't have time for Elite because when <laughs> I when I bought the game, I had a lot of colleagues who um who were getting into it and um they had joysticks and they had everything, but I I wasn't gonna fork out the money for that in case i didn't get on with it so i was playing the game with the the normal control system which was a combination of both the keyboard the mouse and a controller because it just had so many buttons yeah. and the first time i tried to dock a ship i just crashed into the side and blew it up and i had to like forfeit hundreds of credits in insurance to get my ship back and i was like nope I'm out. I can't do yeah. this. I, I do not have the time to try and deal with this. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. That's where I am with it. So, yeah, Elite elite for me is, um, is the ultimate, really. <laughs> well, fair enough. So, we're going to move on to your next game, which is very different to Elite, both Elite and Elite Dangerous. And is a bit more um, of the slaughtering people for fun, not <laughs> talking about relationships kind of game. So, let's listen to some music. Okay, Keith, so once again, before we move on to your next game, which I'm very excited to talk about as it's one of my favorite games of the oh, past great. few years. I absolutely adore the game you're about to talk about next. Um, we have the question of the week, which is okay. a part of the show where listeners of the show um, have almost like a deserted island related question. 
So in the past, <laughs> we've had what game would you hate to be on the island? Um, mm-hmm. We've had what did we have last week? Oh, we had. Um, oh, what was it? Oh, what game would drive you to insanity the fastest? Okay. So Holly, I think last week chose uh, like Candy Crush would probably drive her to insanity the <laughs> fastest. But this week, uh, it comes from Sean Williams, who is a friend of mine. Um, he says, if you could, for one hour a week on your deserted place, which is in Proteus, have a video game character visit you, who would mm-hmm. it be and why? Wow, that is a very good question. That's really, yeah, because that would be my only human contact, wouldn't it? So this is a really, this is really complex yeah, it mm. is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Let 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 me think. Because I I mean, there are lots of really interesting characters, but I but like protagonists. I wonder if they'd be too domineering. <laughs> like so you want they... like maybe a side character almost? Yeah. Or I I don't know. You wouldn't you wouldn't want someone who's too action orientated either because they'd they'd want to go off and discover a crypt or a tomb or something like. You couldn't have Lara Croft. She'd someone really turns break. up for one hour and they're like, "Hey, Keith, I'm I'm off now. I'm going to the tomb." That's yeah. <laughs> no, don't leave me. You're like my only contact for the week. <laughs> Lara Croft would awaken some um, like some some latent demigod by by um, tweaking one of the statues, and then the whole you know my peaceful experience would be ruined. Yeah. You've messed so with it, my island, god damn it! Yeah. <laughs> so that would be too much of a risk, I think. Who who would I like? Oh, um, I think uh, do you know who'd be fun? Bayonetta. Bayonetta would, would be crazy. extremely fun. Yeah. Because she would get into lots of hijinks, but she's more than capable of sorting it herself out. She exists in a universe full of bizarre, extraordinary characters who she could deal with. She's very funny. She's very well read, I suspect. Um, so I'm going to say... She'd be fun to it, talk to just to listen to her voice as well. Exactly. Yeah, she's got a great voice. Very sarcastic. So I think that we'd have very good... Uh, discussions and conversations <laughs> and she would be able to tell me lots of stories about the stuff that she's got up to so she's not one for relationships though so do you reckon no, you could build but... a relationship with her well that's the good thing you see because because if you're only seeing her one hour a week like you don't want someone that you kind of that you you, you get that connected to because that you miss you, know, you don't want to be missing week. someone for the rest of the no. week Whereas she would bring a whole different... And it's such a different vibe as well. Like, Protus is so relaxed and calm. And Bayonetta there comes, do-do-do-do-do, just, like, spinning guns all over the place. And exactly. Just... And then, you know, I'd have to spend the next week... I'd have to spend the whole of the week then tidying up after her visit. So it would give me something to do as well. So, yeah, Bay- Bayonetta, because she Bayonetta. would bring amazing that stories. Is, that is yeah. a superb choice. One I can definitely agree with. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well bayonetta comes this is the most tangible way i can move on into the next game is bayonetta is an action game and yes. the next game you've chosen is a very action oriented game it's developed by soul series developers from software and published by sony computer entertainment it was released for the playstation 4 in march 2015 last year worldwide directed by dark souls director and game designer hidetaki miyazaki and a spin-off from the soul series it's the excellent and wonderful gothic bloodborne yes this is one of my cheating ones cheating um, okay well in the 
in that I've not played that much Bloodborne, I have to admit. But I, what um, I love about the series is the fact that it is utterly... Um, it gives you no space to learn. It chucks you in, and it's totally the opposite of most game design mores in that you are given almost nothing. Um, and this is obviously the From Software way of approaching yeah. game design. You learn um, through your errors and you learn through death. Um, it's such an oblique, oppressive video game. But and it's one that being a dad and also being um, a, a, news, a um, newspaper edit section editor, yeah. I, I find incredibly intimidating. But I love reading about Bloodborne, you know, reading uh, like Rich Stanton is, and, and Keza McDonald's when they talk about Bloodborne. It's so intriguing and fascinating and I want to be part of that world. <laughs> so I think the only way I'm ever going to experience Bloodborne in the way that Rich Stanton or Keza McDonald experienced Bloodborne or Jason Killingsworth, of course, who, who uh, has got together with um, Keza to write um, yeah, the book. Yeah, the you died. really exciting uh, You Died book that's coming out. Yeah, soon. yeah. yeah. Um, I, the only way I'm going to be able to do that is by being left isolated for the rest of my life that is how i'm going to experience bloodborne that is the only way that i'm going to learn that game because i've got into it i've been there for a couple of hours i enjoyed it immensely but i have so much other stuff i'm not saying that i'm not saying that richard rich stanton neglects his children by the way his child um uh, <laughs> sometimes it does seem like it. the amount he the amount he yeah. tweets about Bloodborne is uh, okay. And like, um, obviously, in si- Simon Parker as well. How does he play so many games? It's incredible. <laughs> Simon, um, I I think he's got some way of of, of uh, manipulating time. Because, uh, um, but anyway, did you ask him that when he was on? No, I didn't. I didn't. I don't think I even spoke to him about Bloodborne. I yeah. Ah, oh, well, um, it's an amazing game. Like, what I love about Bloodborne is it's a return to the games that I was first playing in. So it's the, the sensibilities of the games that I was playing when I first started games journalism. So when I started, we were get we started to get things like, um, and it's this whole sense of Japanese developers suddenly understanding that they had they can produce vast, really, really complex and demanding worlds. Yeah. So Bloodborne and Demon Souls and Dark Souls very much take me back to things like uh, Devil May Cry. Resident Evil, Onimusha, um, in that it's a game which is very deep, very large, and makes no concessions to you, very or well, few concessions to you as a player. You have to learn its systems. You have to learn how it thinks and how the designers think. Yeah. And you have to be prepared to input and become good at the game. Yeah. Like it's not a game, you, you need to be able to finesse it. It's it's a game uh, that is almost like a, it's like revising for a test. You need to hammer your revision by getting better and better by defeating like normal enemies, and then you have like a test, which is the boss. Yes. And once you spend ages revising the test, you go to the test, which is the boss, and you lose, and you're like, oh, but I spent so long revising. <laughs> yeah. And then you try again, and you spend ages revising, getting to the boss. You get to the boss and you pass the test and you're like, I can take on any test now. Yeah, It's such an incredible feeling. Yeah, yeah. And it all goes back, interestingly, to, um, you know, obviously Nintendo's design ethics, which is learn, test, master. Yeah. So whenever, you know, this is classic Miyamoto, but um, in every Miyamoto game, you will be given a new power 
you learn it in the normal levels and then you really test it against the bosses. You know, that is fundamental Nintendo game design, yeah. which is kind of writ large in what From Software does. And From Software's first games, um, you know, the, the games that were making years before Demon's Souls came out, um, um, like things like um, Kingsfield and Kingsfield, Armored yeah. Armored yeah, Core, I mean, which was... Armored Core was incredibly deep and was one of the games that on the PlayStation 3 you had, I think it was Armored Core 4 or 5, but it was so deep and you could, it was like a robot game that you could customize your robot to incredible levels yes. beyond most games. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and obviously the fundaments of Demon's Souls were there in Kingsfield um, in, like, what's it, I think, 94? Yeah, I think very, it very, it's a very old game, yeah. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was 1994. Um, and, you know, it was a, a first-person kind of action RPG game, and it had so many of the sort of atmospheric as well as the gameplay elements of the of the Demon Souls tiles, you know. So, what I find interesting is that From Software have been doing this all the way through. It's not they didn't have this sudden idea. Oh no, let's make a really really difficult, dark, bleak, gothic, um, Lovecraftian game. Yeah, it's been in their DNA for twenty years before before you know lots of the before the games that you know we all well most people kind of associate them with. So I, yeah. I find that really interesting that I, that a sense of purity and determination to have a vision and then to stick with it, even though the rest of game design ideology is moving away from it. Yeah. I find that really fascinating, really brave. You know, we're in an era now where, you know, admittedly Japan has fallen behind in a lot of ways. I, you know, in terms of its influence in the world of video games. I think Um, it's one of those things. I think that's what the soul series is so special. I think because mm -hmm. in the early two thousands and then the nineties, you had, so many new IPs coming out of Japan. You had Devil May Cry, you had Resident Evil, you had like Okami, you had all the Mario games, you had Zelda, and they were they were all so different, and they mm. were they kept coming out, and they kept and they made game. Uh, you know, you had Silent Hill and Metal Gear, and they made like Konami big, and then you had like Resident Evil made Capcom big. But for a long time, all we received from Japan, almost for the entirety of the last generation was sequels to games yeah may cry 4 resident evil 6 you know these franchises that people love but have kind of almost not degraded but have been getting a little bit stagnant for time and there wasn't a japanese developer that had made a new ip for a good long while and then all of a sudden demon souls comes out of nowhere and then dark souls comes and just is a catalyst for hey oh no wait japan is still doing some good stuff yeah yeah i mean it was i think it was part of that whole kind of renaissance that we started seeing in them in the sort of the i guess mid to late 2000s and we had you know clover studio um transmogrifying into um into platinum yeah um we also had you know grasshopper manufacturer with suda 51 yeah so we had these kind of pockets of brilliance in japan yeah to the but i think what happened you know this isn't a profound thing to say because it's what everybody understands that companies like capcom and konami and namco looked to the west looked how looked at how things were working they looked at games like grand theft auto and the uncharted series and didn't realize that these were massive games and realized they had to do something like it 
but didn't have the huge amounts of money that those studios had. So we had these experiences like Resident Evil 5 and that were really washed down, watered down versions of the games that they used to make so brilliantly, which were kind of westernized, but in a really sort of flaccid uh, uh, way that didn't really work. Um, but the, the, the studios that really shone, Platinum Games um, being the obvious example, were the oh, yeah. ones that, from software, were the ones that stayed true to the... Um, to the roots of Japanese game design. Yeah, it's almost like it, it, even with uh, Resident Evil Five, it, it, it tried to be Western, but it was almost it was kind of cheesy, but not in a good way. But then you yeah. have like Bayonetta and Vanquish, which were cheesy to the max in a yeah. very Japanese way, and people were like, oh yeah, no wait, this is really fun and this is really enjoyable. But it yeah. had the incredible mechanics of you know like Devil May Cry and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's that mechanical depth that Japanese games have always had because they've come, you know, because in a lot of ways their DNA was in the arcade where... You um, had to get good at a game to be able to play it. Exactly. And in order to give really seasoned arcade game uh, players a challenge, the systems had to be really, really deep. Yeah. And if you want deep systems, then, you know, you go to brawlers and you go to, uh, you know, bullet hell shooters and... Uh, then you really understand systemic depth, I think. Yeah. Um, but from Software and Bloodborne is the latest kind of um, approximation uh, or iteration of that understanding of systemic mechanical depth that you know the great Japanese developers really mastered, I think. So did you start with uh, Bloodborne? Is this like your first delving into the Soul series or had you played Dark Souls? Or I played a little Dark bit Souls. of Demon Souls and, and Dark Souls before. I didn't play any of Dark Souls two, um, um, but yeah, I played it. I played a little bit of them. But I think all the way through, I've un- I've kind of understood and appreciated them, and also understood and appreciated the fact that I wouldn't be able to give them what they needed <laughs> because um, <laughs> it's just plowing out that amount of time would be very very hard. Because as you say, they are tests, and you need to revise. Yes, and, you do. Um, yeah, Unless you're like think... amazing and you can be like that guy on Twitch who completed the game without hitting, without getting hit once. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. no, that's not me. That's not me. <laughs> I, I stumble through video game worlds um, rather than yeah. I'm not. I'm by no means a speed runner. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you in Bloodborne then? What? Where have you got to? Because you haven't finished oh, it, so. But where have you no. got to? Where do you know what? It's been like seven or eight months since I looked at it. So <laughs> I'm, only, I'm about an hour in. Have I even killed a boss? Oh my god! I literally cannot remember. I've got so much going on in my brain at the moment. <laughs> so is this more? This is more of a choice for your. You know your guaranteed quality, and because you'd have the time on your deserted Proteus Island, that you could put into it finally and pass those tests that's it i i took you know this is for me i took this is a very practical exercise and i i didn't want it to be just games that i've loved because i don't think that's you know you've set this you've set this up for a particular reason yeah. i think well i mean even if you didn't mean to that's how i took it so i didn't want it to just be oh here are my eight favorite games of all time because i just don't think uh, i don't think that's really that interesting i really wanted to engage with the task and Bloodborne is a game I really, really want to experience and understand and master. 
but I, in this lifetime, I'm not going to be able to do that. Wouldn't um, you feel a bit so I, upset that once you finally I, mastered it? Yeah, I can, I can, I'm going to have that time. So for me, I took your challenge as an opportunity to learn as well as reminisce. <laughs> <laughs> so wouldn't you feel that though, even if you've passed all these tests and you've mastered it, wouldn't you feel a bit upset that you couldn't tweet about it? No, I'm okay with that. I come from a generation before tweeting. Uh, so okay. I could talk to Bayonetta about it, couldn't I? Oh, you could. You could. Yeah. Wouldn't she be a bit jealous, though, that you didn't choose uh, her was... action game for? Uh, I would explain it. And it, that would give us a frisson to our relationship that I think would, you know, pay dividends in dramatic terms. <laughs> Maybe you could, for one hour a week, just play Bloodborne with Bayonetta. Oh, that wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> that would I would <laughs> that would be amazing. I would love to do that. Imagine doing a like let's play, <laughs> let's play with Bayonetta, Bloodborne. Bayonetta. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Then you can you happen. can almost you can almost taste the YouTube dollars coming in. From oh that yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, it's really <laughs> pie. That would be <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, Bloodborne is a game I absolutely adore, and it was one of my favorite games of last year, and it's probably one of my favorite games of this current generation, this PS4, Xbox One generation. I truly think it's just one of the most perfectly crafted games in yeah. combat and level design, and I could gush on and on about that game for a long time. <laughs> but I think, you know, that's the beautiful thing about it, because it breeds that kind of response. People really cherish it. And I think that's there's so many games now which are made in order to appeal to a wide group of people, and they kind of do, um, but they're in some ways they are um, they're forgettable because we don't yeah. engage with them to that because extent. Because they 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 don't have like a personal touch to them. They're almost trying to cater yeah. to too many people that there is no one there who has any emotional connection to it exactly whereas there's something yeah there's something because <coughs> bloodborne is so um because bloodborne is so esoteric and arcane you almost feel as though you are part of a cult you're part of a community because you have mastered it because you've done the revision and you've passed the test yeah so you've almost it's you're almost joining an occult group I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's like eyes wide shut yeah, yeah. You, you pass the test and you're in the community and then <laughs> um yeah so I, th I think that has that sense i think that's what um jason and keza you know are really going to explore in yeah. their book that sense you know obviously keza was there on that email chain of death when demon souls first came into this country and no one knew what it was or what the hell you were supposed to be yeah, doing in i was very very lucky actually in that regard one of my friends alan um he picked up demon souls for no reason other than because of the old school reason of the box art looked really cool yeah so we played through it and we heard nothing on the internet about it no one was oh yeah doing anything about it and we played through it and we're like, holy crap, this game's incredible. And then all of a sudden there was something, something clicked. I think Dark Souls, a Dark Souls trailer came out and people were like, oh, this is a sequel to this game. And then everyone went and played Demon Souls and realized, wait, this is really good. Dark Souls yeah. looks really good too. And then everyone played Dark Souls. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those lovely um, kind of organic success stories. That yeah, it is. Out it's a very nice everything. story, isn't it? Yeah. As well. I mean, yeah. 
the the publishing history is is quite complex you know the um the first game i don't think was ever really going to be a big deal in the west but it was the it, it was the community that took that game and told like namco or and sony and companies like that that no this is something that we want one yeah and that's i think that's you know that's an amazing part of game well it's worked out because bloodborne is proof of that because even though bloodborne was a sequel uh was a platform exclusive it sold over mm. two million copies which yeah for a japanese company these days creating a new ip is commercially a success yeah, I would love to see the stats on how many on where people got to with that game. I'd love to see that, <laughs> like a chart of like many... every level and how many people just sort of dropped off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> where it was. I, I think I can picture it in my head exactly where. There's like this. The, the I don't want to spoil it too much because you haven't finished that. But there is a like a spider boss. In... It's always the spider boss. Yeah, there's it? like a spider boss in the middle of the game, but it's an incredibly creative boss fight. Mm. It's it's hard to describe, um, but the the reason for why it's so creative is also the reason why it's the most frustrating. And I can imagine a lot of people dropped off after trying to defeat Rom the spider. <laughs> so when okay, you get I'll... to it, when you're on your island. Try and message in a bottle me and tell me if you okay. got beat. If I'll you, get if Bayonetta. You I'll tell Bayonetta. Oh to, yes, tell Bayonetta to come yeah. tell me. <laughs> she'll, but then if we're playing it together, she'll beat it. Like she won't. It'll be nothing to her. Probably. So she'll she'll be she'll be upset that she can't actually fight it her physical self. I think probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just grab the control off me, and that'll be. <laughs> okay so we're gonna move on to your next game which is also an action game and a very interesting choice a game i thought i would never see on this list for some reason oh so, really okay. yeah I, I just i think this is one of the games that has been almost lost to time and it's very underappreciated i think so yeah. we're gonna to listen to some music So, Keith, the next game on your list was developed in tandem by Polish developers People Can Fly and Gears of War developers Epic Games. It was designed by Cliff Blazinski and released for PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and PC in February of 2011. It is the distinctively creative game that is Bulletstorm. Yeah, Bulletstorm, which I think is one of the most underrated first-person shooters of all time. It is a great lost treasure, I think. Well, that's um, what I was trying to say before. It's kind of yeah. like a game that's almost dropped out. It's in the bargain bins of every game store now. And it was reviewed yeah. really, really well. And it yeah. was incredibly creative. Um, 
for anyone who doesn't know, it's a game almost derived around a system of killing enemies in the most creative ways possible and then scoring points for how flashy your kill is, essentially. Yes. Yes, exactly. It had a really complex, interesting killing system where you had like an energy leash so you could uh, grab hold of enemies, whip them towards you, but then in slow motion, yeah. repeatedly shoot them with a variety of different weapons to kind of create almost like pinball style uh, combos. Um, so, yeah, it was all about, I mean, you could get through the whole game and not be creative at all, just shoot people. But the whole idea, it was basically about kind of finessing the world and performing these kind of crazy skill shots. Um, and then, you know, and, and and just experimenting with that system. But it was also one of the funniest, one of the funniest kind of first person shoot, first person shoots I've the ever The dialogue played. was incredibly crude oh, and it was uh, really, funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I, but I, but it was clever. Like lots of people like wrote it off as just a crude kind of frat boyish uh, buddy uh, game like almost like a buddy cop movie <laughs> but to me i mean i felt that it really commented on those games i felt that it was a comment on it was a parody a pastiche of of the ridiculous me, um, kind of bro relationships that you get in video games because it was so exaggerated it was so accentuated the lead character grayson hunt is just such a ridiculous machismo character um <laughs> And, you know, his relationship with his um, with his kind of sidekick, Ishii, is kind of like just bubbling with homoerotic <laughs> undertones. Um, and it, but it's just but their adventures uh, and it's set kind of on this um, this kind of broken pleasure planet. It's a pleasure planet that's um, been destroyed and his spaceship crashes on this planet while he's trying to seek revenge on a sort of an evil uh, dictator called uh, General Serrano, um, who has made him and his mercenary team murder lots of innocent people. And he didn't realise, Grayson didn't realise what he was doing, finds out that he's murdered lots of innocent people and goes to seek his revenge. But it, uh, And in the opening scenes of the game, his revenge is ridiculously foolhardy and ill thought out. And his spaceship ends up crashing on this kind of knackered planet. And it's... <laughs> And it's, uh, but then so does Serrano's spaceship as well. So it's all about your quest. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz, but with bros and guns. <laughs> <laughs> You're following the bloody red brick road to Serrano's spaceship so that you confront him, so that you can confront him. And it's just the most ridiculous, lively, fun, joyful, idiotic, um, clever game that i've played and it was just such a pleasure and it was just such this amazing clash of kind of polish sensibilities and the sensibilities of epic games you know that um, that i found really really fascinating the dynamics of this game and i wrote i can remember writing a feature about it after i finished it and i don't want i won't give anything away about the game but i really do feel there's something in this game which is more profound than what people see in it i think this is a game kind of about guilt and remorse because grayson is guilty for what he's done and he's trying to gain revenge to make himself feel better to make yeah. himself feel still less of a of a sadistic maniac so this whole game is about him dealing with remorse and dealing with guilt and i found that in the game you go through like the missions are almost like the stages of guilt, uh, of uh, of remorse. 
uh, and um, you know he goes through denial, anger. He goes through all of these emotions throughout throughout the experience, and at the end of it, he he meets Serrano. And I won't say what happens, but um, there's some really interesting dialogue between the two of them, where Serrano is saying, you know, I'm the bad guy, and yet you're you're the guy who I ordered to kill, and you did it without questioning. And then to get to me, you've killed even more. Yeah. And who's to say they're even through all killed. the stages of remorse? Yeah. You've you, kept killing people kid. constantly. Yeah. And not only I, have you kept killing them, you've you've killed them in really extremely creative ways for fun. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, this is a game that is about the systems of shoot 'em ups. And it really reminded me that that whole conversation about, you know, the people you killed have wives and families. It reminded me of that scene. I think it's in Clark's, the movie, Kevin Smith movie, where um, a character is talking about the end of Return of the Jedi. Oh, saying, yes, you know, yes, 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 yeah, in Clerks. Yeah, yeah, you know, look, the, the, the Death Star was in construction. There must have been hun- thousands, tens of thousands <laughs> of construction workers working on that base. You know, they didn't know it was, you know, they may have not known it was like an evil uh, weapon of mass destruction. They were there because they needed to make money. They needed to pay their families. Yet they were you know, obliterated by Lando Calrissian um, without a second thought. So, you know, I, I, I really love the way that, um, you know, the, I, I think Bulletstorm kind of deals with that in a funny kind of way. But it's also a brilliant systemic um, shooter with wonderful uh, mechanics, a really funny story and some amazing set pieces. And I played this at a time when I played another really, really underrated game, um, uh, Enslaved by... Um, Ninja Theory. Ninja Theory, the uh, creators um, of uh, Heavenly it's... Sword and yeah, the new uh, game that had an awesome trailer for it released yesterday, Hellblade. Yes, yes, exactly, um, which looks fascinating. Mm. But Enslaved Odyssey to the West is, um, yeah, it's kind of another action adventure set on a dead planet, um, but great characters and great humor. And I played these games back to back and I just thought, oh my God, games are so amazing because they're so funny <laughs> and so beautiful and such ridiculous characters. But yeah, Bulletstorm, um, I just think it's one of the great travesties. Of It's one of those games where it should have been a huge success because it was so funny yeah. and so self-referential and so full of life and creativity. But it just got lost Um and, you know, obviously the team that made Bulletstorm then went on to um, work to set up a new studio um, and they made The Vanished Inner of Ethan Carter, which is another really, really interesting, beautiful game um, with lots of fascinating ideas. Very different experience than Bulletstorm, but you can kind of see the DNA there. Um, but, yeah, oh, God, it's so, so much fun. And it's a game that I will go back to and play again because there's so many funny set pieces. And there's so much awareness of the idiocy of game conventions in it as well um, that, um, yeah, I, I love it. And like, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't played it, please, if you only take one thing out of this podcast, buy Bulletstorm and play it. Do it. It's um, incredibly yes. cheap. If you still own an Xbox 360 or a PlayStation, yes. or even if you have, because I think it's on Steam, it's incredibly cheap and you will have so much fun playing it. You will. It's a great it's a great thrill ride. It's ridiculous. And just there's some set piece jokes in there that are just genius. They're just really, really funny. Um uh, yeah, and I, I just love the fact that whole the whole game starts with a drunken character making a ridiculous mistake. 
Um, I just love I I love that idea that the whole game comes out of a moment of foolhardy bravado. Um, I just think it says so much about games. So yeah, P- P- Bulletstorm's great. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's definitely one of the more under it's like you're talking about enslaved as well two games that are definitely two of the most underappreciated games from the previous generation yes yeah absolutely enslaved is is a wonderful game i mean the the combat isn't great because all the enemies are exactly yeah i was gonna say the combat was (laughs) not great the story and the relationship between the two lead characters like i'm not really one for stories and games that are told through cinematic cutscenes. i kind of feel like we've seen so much of that and I feel it's quite cheap because this is an interactive medium and like I understand why it happens and people love it. And I love the Uncharted series because it tells the story so well, but I just feel that it's, it's not, it's, it's giving us little movies within a game and video games are primarily interactive experience and we should tell the story ourselves. So, but um, Enslaved is such a beautiful game with such good characters and such a good understanding of its source material as well you know the ancient chinese story yeah uh so, to the west yes yeah exactly so with tripitaka and and uh, monkey obviously yeah um that you know it's lovely so you know yeah buy both those games buy enslaved <laughs> and Bulletstorm, and you will have a great few days uh, even if you don't agree that bullet store is great you will have a quite an experience they're both me. relatively short experiences as well so yeah uh, bullet storm yeah. although has incredibly good replayability the level design is a bit hit and miss sometimes but Mm -hmm. trying to beat your score trying to get the most creative kills is also one of the best parts of playing bullet storm as well as the story yeah you can finesse it so you can keep going back to it and finessing it and and getting better yeah absolutely yeah well and you will keep laughing (laughs) yeah it's a very (laughs) funny game well we're going to move on from bullet storm now we've gone blade uh bloodborne bullet storm And now we're going completely different. We're going to change (laughs) gears. So we're going to listen to some music. If there is any music from this thing. Okay, so next on your list is Game Maker. Yes. And it's not technically a game. It's a no. tool created by Yo-Yo Games that allows users to create their own games. And mm. some games that have been created using this tool include games such as Hotline Miami, Undertale, Downwell, and even Spelunky. So it is quite the powerful tool. This is a first. We had Andy right. Kelly choose Music 2000, but that technically was on a console and was mm. kind of packaged as a game. Game Maker is a very interesting choice, and I will allow it because wow, the end you. product because the end product <laughs> is a game. Yes, 
you are and you could you know you could say the creative process is itself game like so you know um it does kind of fit the criteria and it does when you buy game maker it does come with examples so you know you are there are games to play um but uh, yeah, I mean, I chose this because if you are alone for the rest of your life and you've only got a few games to choose, you will want to feel, I feel like I want to feel creative. Like it's, I think it's really important to be a, to be creative all the way through your life and to play. So I would want to experiment and create my own games. And therefore I could exponentially expand the number of games I can play simply by making them. And I think they'd be really, really bad games, but you know, I would get better at it. I would learn a craft. So, you know, and just playing, as you said, some of the games that were made on there, some of the most important games, most interesting games of the last five years, things like Undertale and Spelunky. Um, even if you don't like those games, they are really important. Um, and also um, one of my ex-colleagues uh, in games journalism, in fact, two of my ex-colleagues in games journalism kind of learned about game design through Game Maker, specifically Tom Francis. Tom Francis, the uh, creator yeah. of Gunpoint. Yes. And, you know, he was like me, a games journalist, and he became kind of frustrated with that. And he started playing around with game design tools. And he created Gunpoint, which is a fantastic uh, a kind of 2D stealth game. Yeah, um, it's an awesome game. And actually is was one yes. of my favorite games a few years ago as well. Ah, yeah. And I Tom really Francis enjoyed is it. really, yeah, he's a really interesting really funny guy i've and said to, i've said to three people already that i'm gonna get tom on this show but nothing oh, has come of it yet nothing i don't i don't even know if he knows that <laughs> oh well that, yeah i could i'll email him for you oh fantastic <laughs> <laughs> um, but um yeah so that's why I cut, that, that you know piqued my interest when he wrote gunpoint and i have started because um um, I've kind of started toying with Scratch, uh, which is MIT's kind of very basic script-based development tool. Yes. Um, started use, I've, I've, I've toyed with that with my son, Zach. And, um, and I think, um, you know, I think we will move on to, I mean, I've played a little bit with Game Maker and I've met Yo-Yo Games. And uh, what I, what's interesting is one of the head leads of Yo-Yo Games is one of the, one of the original team on um, the original Grand Theft Auto, Mike, uh, Mike Daly. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he left DMA Design and he and um, Yo-Yo Games took on Gun, uh, Game Maker from from its original developer. And yes, because it was a so very now, very old tool originally. Yeah, it started that's in the nineties, right. wasn't it? Now now yes. it's technically called Game Maker Studio. It's almost like a yes. a sequel tool to the original Game Maker. Yeah, yo, so Yo-Yo Games kind of took it on as a commercial prospect and have developed and tweaked it ever since. But yeah, leading up that process has been Mike Daly, one of the original coders from DMA. Um, who, you know, co-creator of Lemmings and co-creator of Grand Theft Auto. Yes. So it shows you the kind of pedigree of the people that are in charge of that tool. But yeah, I think, um, you know, I've always, uh, like I started out in game development and I've always been really interested, like massively interested in the development process. Um, I entered a game jam in 2013, I think it was, where they got um, games journalists to work with very young uh, coders to create games over this game jam process. And they got, at the same time, this was, a, um, it was Yuki, the um, video games industry, a trade body in the United Kingdom. Oh, yes. Organized yeah. this games jam. Yeah. And at the same time, they got established developers to be journalists to report on the games that we were making in that process. So it was kind of like a job swap. Um, <laughs> was it almost a, like a revenge plan for the developers? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny, actually. There was, yeah, there was a lot of like kind of friendly rivalry. Um, <laughs> 
But it was really, really interesting because it was, uh, you know, doing a game jam and being involved in coding or helping to code a game. And what I did, mo what I did mostly was like help with the graphics and the sound rather than actually any coding. Um, but that kind of brought me back into that whole pleasure of creating something. And even if it's something really simple and broken and rubbish, just making things move on screen and being able to act with, interact with them is an incredible creative magic. So, um, so I think, yeah, well, I'm stuck on this island and in those very, very long hours between uh, the visits from Bayonetta, <laughs> I think I loved, I'd love the idea that I would be able to create my own games. So do you um, have an... Do you have an idea in your head of what game you want to create? Is there is there a a Keith Stewart plan like oh, Tom did with Gunpoint? He kind yeah. of knew what he wanted to do. Is I there a that... is there a game in your head that is trying to escape? Um, there isn't one game. I'm really interested in like genres. Like, I mean, obviously, everyone's interested in like roguelikes at the moment. I'm fascinated in the mechanics of yeah. that. So I feel like you know, like um. Ang Lee, the film director, once said about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that you're not a film director until you've made a martial arts movie. Um, <laughs> I feel like in some ways you're not a games player unless you've made a play, uh, unless you've made a game. Unless you know, you've got to understand, you know, and, and I think if maybe you're not even a game designer until you've tried roguelike, because I feel like to me the roguelike is the martial arts movie of the games industry in that it's so kind of complex and mannered and intricate and misunderstood mm. but uh, i also think it's a good i also think it's a good basis for starting out as uh, someone developing games anyway because essentially you don't really need to create any narrative which can be no, very difficult exactly. for someone who has no experience writing or creating a story you basically just have to create a setting and yes. then repeat the setting over and over again yeah you know like, randomly like, generate it yeah procedurally generated so yeah, yeah. sorry yeah um yeah, um, yeah, I think so. You know, I'd like, I'd quite like to have a go at a roguelike because um, you know I feel that the roguelike is the martial arts genre, and I think I'd have to do that. But I don't know. I mean, I'm really interested in, you know, I love, I love the genre which is often euphemistically and um, pointedly called walking sims. So I'm really interested in things like Gone Home and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and Firewatch. And I, I would love to, I would love to make one of those simply because I love the idea of being in an environment and not giving the player that much, just allowing them to experience it and then watching and then finding out what people take from it. You know, I'd love to, I think it's really fascinating, um, you know, what being a developer like Chinese Room or Campo Santo um, or Fulbright and then watching the reactions to those games and watching what people take out of them because people take things like gone home very personally um you know and life is strange is another great example of this people have really taken them to heart and really imprinted themselves onto these worlds and i think that's really really interesting and those games are often you know criticized the fact that well, are they games or are they not which is a really tiresome and boring discussion uh, yeah. which will never have an outcome you know no one has ever really come up with a single definition of what a game is simply because you can't uh, there is no single definition of a, of a game. But what I think those experiences do do is give people freedom to imprint and interpret what's happening uh, in, in unusual and fascinating ways. Um, so, you know, I'd love to, you know, if, if, if a game maker would allow me to make a kind of experiential thing, I would be, I'd be really interested in doing do that as well. Do you reckon you could create the first ever walking sim roguelike? 
She go, oh, God, that would be amazing, wouldn't a it? A game where you start out experiencing, let's say, let's take everybody's gone to Rapture, you know, like a yeah. like a town in Shropshire, and at some turns you make the wrong turn and you fail and then you have to start again and you keep building up slowly learning more and more about the world and where you could go wrong and that kind of thing yeah or it was just a procedural environment where there were different kind of emotional aspects to it like you never you'd walk into a room and you might find uh, the diary of a depressed teenager or you might find an audio recording of uh, someone talking about the end of the world you don't know it could be anything it's just, um yeah i think god yeah a roguelike walking sim i think i think you know this 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 has got this has got um potential i might pitch <laughs> this chinese room hey um, hey, um, hey 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 <laughs> well we we could we <laughs> pitch this <laughs> <laughs> that's another good I'm, I'm very good at stealing ideas but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated in procedural generation definitely as well. I mean, you know, I think the future, there, there is a future of games in which I can, I can imagine in 20, maybe 10, 20 years time, there will be a fully procedural Grand Theft Auto in which the landscape is effectively generated for each player. It's that kind with, of thing, uh, isn't it? Because we kind of have yeah. tech demos now that are city generators or planet generators, but they've never quite combined with the developers of games who make you know games so we've yes. got all these amazing tech demos of like city generation or plant there was that full-scale planet generation but they've not quite met heads yet and created a mm. game where you can procedurally generate a whole city and then make a game out of it yeah i mean you need super smart ai characters as well and you need a, a game system which can cope with emergent narratives so yeah. i've spoken to a lot of developers recently in the field of artificial intelligence who are experimenting with things like procedural narratives so a system which can write stories based on what you do in the world so or, or watch what players do and kind of work out stories based on those and have intelligent characters that can come up with stories uh, on the fly. So, you know, if you entered, say, Los Santos and you started robbing banks, then the computer would learn that that's what you like to do. And they would introduce AI characters that would say, ah, so you're a you're a bank robber. Yeah. Well, I've got the bank robbery for you. <laughs> and then the game would then create around you a procedural story about the ultimate yeah. bank heist. That would be incredible, but also scary because that would be like AI sentiently writing, knowing what it's doing almost. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or knowing, yeah, knowing you, psychologically profiling, psychologically profiling you as a player. So, yeah, I think that would be... um, I think that would be very what, interesting. What are some of the procedural generated roguelikes that you've played? Because I, I, I really enjoy that genre of game. I'm, I because, because in this world of like as we were talking about before in the nineties, where you had arcade games which were like quick burst, fast gameplay that had to give you a lot in a very short amount of time. These roguelikes are almost doing that again. Yeah, because you've got yeah. games like I absolutely love Rogue Legacy. I don't know if you've ever played Rogue Legacy. Oh yes, I've been. Yeah, I played. I played, but I played Rogue Legacy. I love that game. It's one of my favorite games on like recent times, and just because I can jump into it like instantaneously and swipe a sword at a few enemies and get loads of gold and then go out and then the whole world will change, the whole castle will change, and I can do it again and again, and I just keep 
repeating. It's so nice yeah. to jump in for 10 minutes and play. Yeah, it's like um, Spelunky, yes. um, you know, which is a wonderful game. Um, but it is, yeah, it's, it, it, because it's always different. But yet the parameters are always the same. You can finesse it and keep coming back. Yeah. And learning more about the world, even though the world is changing all the time, I think I think that's really really interesting. I played um, uh, quite recently. I had my first go on um, uh, Below from Cappy Games, um, which is kind of like a roguelike RPG in a lot of ways. So um, that looked really really interesting. Um, it, you know, even though it's an adventure game, it has kind of it has kind of procedurally generated elements to it. So. Um, and you're a very small character in quite a lonely world, uh, exploring the dungeons beneath this kind of island. Um, but it has a really nice feel to it. it has really nice visuals. It uses like a tilt shift perspective on the world, so you feel like you're this tiny little being on this almost like model like world. But the systems are quite nicely hidden. So they're very subtle, so it doesn't really feel like a really kind of complex, heavy uh, roguelike. It just feels as though. Uh, you're in you're in a world which can change at any moment. So I I think um, below is going to be really really interesting. It's very nice and Capi Capi are amazing developers as well. I think there was Lots news of, today. Like, I think one of the news stories today was that that's coming to Xbox One in the summer. So right, could yes, be, could be if you own an Xbox One, definitely pick that game up. Yeah, yeah, it's Windows and Xbox One. I tried it on Xbox One at uh, yeah the preview event I went to in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and it's just super really really nice. Awesome. So yeah, I think um, yeah, I don't know how, how we got into roguelikes now, but yes, because we oh, yeah, we are going right. to make millions of pounds, yeah, creating our first ever game with two people who have very limited experience in game development. But Game Maker is going to help us, and we're going to make yes. millions with our first ever walking sim roguelike. Yes, I think that this is gen. This is for a walking sim. This has definitely got legs. <laughs> and you and you are one of britain's most respected writers how could you <laughs> i'm just gonna go dead now isn't it <laughs> that's it people have people have turned it off we might as well not even might as well not even talk about the last two games because people have left already <laughs> all the people are kind of right now unsubscribing to your podcast <laughs> i had i i was waiting to have you on for so long just so you could do this <laughs> i've blown it <laughs> well we're going to move on now from making games to one of the uh, more the more, one of the more revolutionary games of the the late 90s um and it's your penultimate game so let's listen to some absolutely wonderful music
So, Keith, the second to last game on your list is the developed and published by Sega wonderful game that was directed by Yu Suzuki, released for the Dreamcast in December 1999 for Japan, and then a year later in December 2000 in Europe, players take on the role of the revenge-seeking Ryo Hazuki. It's Shenmue. Yes, Shenmue. It's so bound, uh, so bound in my memory with working on a Dreamcast magazine and that whole time in games where so full of hope. <laughs> I was a real <laughs> fan of the Dreamcast. Um, like I've been a fan of Sega's hardware, like you know, since the, since the beginning. Um, I had a friend who had a Master System rather than a NES. Everyone had like NESs, and I had saw one Master System. Um, this is like the story of my life, really. When I moved to um, Stockport, I, I was I, I was born in Bletchley, just outside Milton Keynes. We moved to Stockport when I was eight or nine. And uh, two really important things happened to me which shaped my life. Uh, one of them was that I had a friend with a Master System, not a NES. And the other one was that I went to a football game with the only Manchester City supporting um, uh, neighbour within like the, within like 10-mile parameter of my house. <laughs> so... I grew up supporting Manchester City. Like the good Sega. man that you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, excellent, uh, excellent. I, this, I this, now, now we can have a proper conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But those, those two things that happened, probably within two weeks of, uh, maybe in a couple, well, I know they, they were in a few years of each other, have to be, you know, my memory is, um, <laughs> get, uh, my memory is going slightly. Um, <laughs> but they, um, they were close together. But I think these two moments, of course, of me supporting the underdog have, have you know, been a massive um, effect on my life in the way that I see things. So, yeah, I was a Sega fan and I was a Man City fan in a world of Nintendo consoles and Man United supporters. Um, so, you know, I love um, I love the dream. I love the Mega Drive, obviously. So many amazing games. Yeah. Uh, such a great story. And then I left video game. Well, I didn't leave video game journalism. I left magazine journalism uh, being on a magazine after Edge and decided to go freelance and decided not to work on a magazine again. But just to be a writer. Um, but then my friend Casper Field, who had worked with me at Edge, um, gave me a call. I think it must have been in like May or June of 1999 and said, I'm starting up Future's Dreamcast magazine. Will you come and help? Be, come and be an associate editor and kind of help me with this. And um, if it had been any other platform, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have gone back into working on my magazine team. But it was the Dreamcast. So I went, he, he pulled me back in. It was like Al Pacino in. <laughs> Um, Godfather 3. Every time I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So I became associate editor on DC UK magazine. Um, and uh, so got very, very involved with the Dreamcast as it was being just before it was launched and, and through its first year, its first tumultuous year. And for me, Shenmue kind of symbolizes that era because it was a game of great explorative genius and great freedom and full of ideas, but yet also weirdly kind of restricted in lots of different ways. It was the beginning. It was it was looking over her on a horizon and seeing the future, uh, seeing what was possible, but yet not quite being there. Um, you know, there was so many games around at that time that were like that, but Shenmue was wonderful. You know, being in the streets of that little town wandering around meeting the bizarre badly um voice acted characters <laughs> and going into did the you arcade. see a black car go by here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can you tell me where i can find sailors which is the greatest line yeah. in uh, 
It's true. Oh, Rio! <laughs> <laughs> they were amazing. Like, yeah, the sort of the rap. That, yeah, just bizarre characters all the way through that game. But just that sense of freedom of existing in a world, having to meet a timetable within a game, which was later kind of explored really interestingly, and similarly in a flawed way in, in um, uh, Heavy Rain. It was that sense of existing in a world where there was a timetable that you, ha- you had to adhere to in a quite kind of quotidian and workmanlike way. Shenmue made you think about how much money you had in your pocket and what should you spend it on? Should you spend it on another game of like hang on in the arcade or, you know, or, or, or do something more useful? It had this wonderful sense of time and belonging and it had that kind of small town yearning in it as well which you've never really, I've not really seen with games that much. Um, Ryu was in some ways kind of gaming's Luke Skywalker in that he he saw this expansive world of opportunity and drama, but he felt kind of distant from it. And then his father was taken from him. So it had that kind of same kind of Star Wars style um, background, that generational background of conflict and loss mm. uh, and opportunity. And you know, and also Yu Suzuki is one of the great geniuses of game design, uh, who understood games as experiences. Lots of people misread Outrun, for example, as a game about driving a car as fast as you can, when really it's a game about experiencing life on the road in sun-drenched California. Yeah, um, it's very much and, a you know, just... topical piece about the Miami Vice type watercolor pictures of the 80s in america exactly it was it was 80s america it was the it was the vision of 80s america that television and film and action films the films of like people like don silva films like you know um beverly hills cop gave us of of america um you know that 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 was all in there and and um and i think shenmue is in some ways kind of like doing that for martial arts films and also for um, Japanese arcade games and uh, Japanese fighting games. It kind of explores that visual style, that kind of brightness, that crispness of movement and um, and dynamism. But, you know, Shemu is so interesting in that it was just doing so many different things. The quick time events, which are obviously now much parodied and much hated, <laughs> But they made sense such, at the time. Yeah, they they tried they were dealing with the limitations of consoles at that time, but still trying to portray this action filled adventure that didn't want to slow down the gameplay. It was trying to yeah. portray to the player, look, you need to be fast and quick without mashing lots of buttons into exactly. a game and it's slowing down. It was it was Yu Suzuki understanding like you see has an amazing understanding of the mechanics of games you know if you look at virtua fighter you know really is such it's so much more of an in-depth combat game than uh tekken um in the way that it allows you to kind of craft systems yourself it's very modular and and um you know for a very good virtua fighter player that 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 game is um is so open to a self-expression but you have to be super good at it and understand its systems and the same with um, Yu Suzuki's driving games. You know, you really had to understand them. You had to be yeah. brilliant at them. And he really understood all that. But he wanted to apply that to an open world. And he knew that this new world of games was coming. And he wanted to find a way where he could get that preciseness and that kind of fluidity and choreography 
to a wider audience, which didn't involve them having to learn multiple combos and button presses. So, you know, Shenmue was such an experiment in terms of bringing age-old arcade systems into a whole new paradigm of game design. It was so important, and it was beautiful at the time. It's, you know, you look back at it now, and it kind of looks a bit jaggedy and a bit clumsy, but it just looked amazing. You know, the fact that it go, you had the variable weather effects, you had... Um, you had lots of stuff going on in the world that wasn't a part of what you were doing. You felt as if there was an, an environment that lived. It was just an incredibly clever, interesting environment to be in. Um, and it was all, you know, we'd have it on in the office. Uh, we almost kind of used it as our as our kind of box set. Uh, you know, we'd um, instead of watching Breaking Bad together or whatever, we would sit down and play, you know, a few an hour or so of, of Shenmue. <laughs> Today um, on it, this episode of Shenmue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Previously on Shenmue. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like that. You know, we um, we were, were wholehearted fans on that. I mean, that was a real fanzine, DC UK. We loved, we loved the games. We played so much kind of Soul Calibur. We played <laughs> lots of Sonic Adventure. Um, we played so much Seaman uh, and oh Seaman, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, God, that was just amazing, wasn't it? You know, you had a game which came with a a peripheral which allowed you to talk to a fish, to talk to a fish that yeah. spoke about some very strange things, weird, weird stuff. I was very <laughs> tempted to put Seaman in as a as, as one of my options. But I went he, would he be your Wilson on your island? Maybe, yeah, that would have that that would be it in my castaway thing. He would have been my Wilson, but he would have been really, really bizarre, upsetting. Um, Wilson, I think I would have ended up flushing him down the toilet after about two weeks. <laughs> so, just yeah. before we move on from Shenmue, what was it like working on a magazine with a console that was, you know, failing commercially? And you were trying uh, to make the most of, let's not deny it, the Dreamcast had incredible games. For yeah. some reason, it just didn't work out. It had Jet Set Radio, Ready to Rumble Boxing, Shenmue, Crazy Taxi. You know, it had all these incredible games, but it didn't work out. What was it like trying to every month be like, hey, look, look at these wonderful games, but it just yeah. wasn't working. It was very similar to being the Manchester City supporter. In the, um, <laughs> you knew you had incredible players like King Cloudsy. You could watch them score one of the greatest goals of all time against Southampton in 1996. Um, but yet you knew that there was so much wrong with the team and the manager wasn't quite up to it. Um, they weren't, but you loved them anyway. There were yeah. glimpses of beauty in a yes. failing Typical, typical city as we, as we exactly, Sorry, yeah. American guys, I'm so sorry. We're talking about English about soccer, soccer, but yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Manchester has two teams, Man City and Man United. Man United have had you know, 40 years of glory and success, uh, one of the greatest teams in Europe, and Manchester City haven't. Well, we've, <laughs> until, we've, we've until maybe had five years of success now. Yes, we have, and, we have. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, but essentially, that is kind of like being on a Dreamcast magazine in that, say, like Sega started well. They sold a lot of consoles in the first couple of months, but they could not get it together. They could not understand the, where the market was going. Um, they did like they made so many mistakes after the Mega Drive, which was phenomenally successful. But after that, 
they were very lackluster about moving on. They didn't want to lose their user base. So they produced the Mega CD, which did really, really well. People forget how well that thing did. Then they did the 32X, and then they floundered because they didn't know where to go, and they didn't know what they were doing, and they didn't understand that this thing was coming called CD-ROM that was going to massively revolutionize the way games are played. It didn't understand. Um, there was lots it didn't get. It didn't get it till late. So Dreamcast was kind of it. Okay, we're back in. We're back on the forefront now. We completely get everything. And the Dreamcast was obviously the first console, first major console with a built-in modem. Um, so it kind of understood where games were going. But it just, in terms of business, it couldn't get it together enough to survive in a PlayStation-dominated industry. Yeah. I'm not really sure that Dreamcast could have done anything that would have protected it against the arrival of PlayStation. It's really strange because it wasn't like the games were bad either. And no, I don't remember what the price point was. Was the price point expensive for the Dreamcast? It was. Oh God, I can't remember now. That's asking. I think it was two nine nine. I think well, I could be wrong. That's not know. exactly. I mean, at the time that yeah. might have been expensive, but it may even been. It may even have been less. But it it was just there was this steamroller called PlayStation that had become the what people understood of as games. I mean, it was like, you know, Nintendo in the in the sort of early 90s and late 80s, you know, people said, I'm going to play Nintendo. They didn't, play, they didn't say, I'm going to play um, video games. And that's what, that's the level that PlayStation got to. Um, PlayStation was the hoover of video games. It was what you called a video game console. So Dreamcast was always going to, um, was always going to have difficulties. Plus, it just could not get those big western publishers it was still very much inward looking towards japan it didn't understand how important electronic arts was going to be yeah and electronic arts had bought so much into the playstation dream and it couldn't it didn't get ea i think that was really really important um and it didn't get lots of other big uh, developers and publishers of that western publishers at that time so although games like Soul Calibur and Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio and, and you know and Res were so beautiful and incredible it just couldn't get those massive crossover hits like FIFA um, that were just going to PlayStation. And, play, um, and you know, you, you saw it happening. When I was on the magazine, we were seeing the sales figures coming in. We were talking to people at Sega. They were so upbeat for the first three months. You know, when the first sales came in and, and Dreamcast did really well in the States to begin with, we were thinking, hang on, there might be something to this. This might actually work. <laughs> um, but then very quickly, there was a realisation... <laughs> Yeah, that's PlayStation Two became a reality. We and we were seeing the games that were, you know, that they were sharing. Yeah. We thought we are not in this for the long haul. Um, let's oh. just enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. And then we had that kind of, we had that sort of mentality. It was that kind of siege mentality um, amongst us on the team. We knew we were going down, um, but we were going to have fun yeah. <laughs> on the way. Um, it was like the Wild Bunch, but with less slow motion and less play. <laughs> and, <laughs> and did you and, have fun? Did you have fun? I loved it. We had a great time. It was a wonderful time. We had a really great team. Um, a few of them have gone on, to, have stayed in journalism. A few of them have gone into like game development. Um, but we had a great team. We lived and breathed Dreamcast. We'd work until midnight. We'd go out to a club. We'd, um, you know, we'd we'd go out until two a.m. Come back in at eight o'clock in the morning and write more stuff mm. we did crazy stupid things i got blacklisted by sega uh even though i was working on a sega um, <laughs> um magazine what did you do i we put um a cheats a detailed cheat disc on the front cover 
of the magazine we get we gave it away free um and it was kind of like a demo disc of daytel that makes all these cheap cheat discs that allow you to input cheats to be better at video games ah okay um, like an actual so, replay type thing yes exactly very much the same basically the same sort of thing but on a yeah. disc um but what i didn't fully realize at the time was that in order for this disc to work it bypassed all the security uh, and region locking of the dreamcast ah, so effectively well, people could put this disc in take it out and then put in put games the pirated that games or yes. or from different territories and uh, amazingly sega took this rather badly and um, blacklisted my magazine you've helped um, people pirate and region yes. unlock our console yeah we're not yeah. happy <laughs> they weren't happy like the month before we'd we'd done a um, feature on how to uh, disc swap so that you could play japanese games um <laughs> so uh, because you know so many great dreamcast games especially shooters that were coming out in um in japan that weren't coming out in the uk uh, radiant um, so we just, and all that kind of thing yeah exactly you know ikarugo i don't think that was out at the, at the time in in europe so uh, we just thought, you know, this is a service for hardcore players. Here's that, and then you can go to um, Lixang or PlayAsia or whatever and, you know, and buy these games. Um, but Sega weren't happy because they were saying, you know, we need to support sales of games in Europe. Um, and I didn't really get that. I didn't really sort of understand that they were, you know, it's like quite territorial. But yeah. I didn't really care, to be honest. You know, it wasn't in their business. I was in the business of giving my readers, um, you know, interesting things to try. Yeah. So um, anyway, so yeah, I got blacklisted. But in the end, it didn't really affect me because um, Sega's PR in Europe wasn't amazing anyway. And I also was very, very good friends with the editor of the official Dreamcast magazine in the States um, who had worked with me on Edge, Simon Cox. So I kind of got quite a lot of stuff through him. But I also made friends with the editor of... Um, uh, Dreamcast Famitsu. Um, um, we kind of uh, chatted through email and uh, we managed to meet at the Tokyo Game Show, got quite friendly. Um, so we started sneakily swapping information on the slide. So I would send him screenshots and information of Western games that I thought he should be interested in. And he would send me a hell of a lot of stuff from uh, Sega Japan, which nice. I was interested in. So... Um, yeah, it's one of the um, one of the importance of making contacts in the video game industry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you never know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a very small industry, and you you know, it's good to keep hold of people and um, don't forget people and make friends where you, where you can. Um, and yeah, making friends with the editor of Dreamcast from Mitsu was was very valuable. It kept my magazine alive in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, so so uh, yeah, so it was great fun doing stuff like that. Was 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 wonderful fun, and it was a time when future had a bit more money so they would let us do weird experimental features like when sega bass fishing came out we decided to do a feature where we went bass fishing in real life so uh <laughs> we went down to cornwall and hired a fishing boat and uh me and the, the deputy editor and a photographer went out on this fishing boat to catch bass um but we were on the sea for about an hour and then um uh, the photographer started throwing up through seasickness and then my deputy editor started throwing up um we caught a couple of mackerel but then we had to go back because everyone was so ill um <laughs> did you actually yeah. write the feature in the end we did we called it um because the blair witch project had just come out so we called it the um the uh, i think it was the sega bass project and uh, we wrote it as though we'd been lost at sea and that all we'd uh, all we'd all they'd found was these photographs of uh, of a bass fishing trip that had gone terribly wrong and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds excellent <laughs> yeah so um but yeah you could do stupid stuff like that and and get away with it 
fantastic um, so yeah it was, it was wonderful it was a brilliant it was a brilliant time so and Shenmue kind of Shenmue kind of symbolizes like I said that point in games where you understood that we were on the verge of something new and fascinating and it was just visible on the horizon yeah um, but it wasn't quite there. Aww. But the sky is kind of beautiful. <laughs> it sounds so sad, but so kind of beautiful at the same time. Because the Dreamcast is loved by so many. So it's yeah. almost exactly. a, a, it's a perfect story that kind of epitomizes the Dreamcast era, I think. <laughs> yeah, and it's important to recognize as well that the, the games, the video, ga- video games history isn't a timeline of success. It's not... Lots of people kind of think of each generation of bit, you know, of like so they'll think kind of NES, SNES, PlayStation, PlayStation Two, Xbox. You know, they think in they think of yeah. the games industry as being linear, but it's really important. People to forget about you know the Sega Saturn, the 3DO, the yeah, PC yeah. Engine. These the... were important machines, mm. you know. Uh, to, yeah, the, the Turbo Graphics, the FM's yeah. Town, FM Towns Marty, uh, Wonder Swan. Um, the video games industry is much more chaotic than linear history allows us to understand. And when I started on Edge, we were still, you know, we were reviewing um, CDI games, still reviewing 3DO games. And those games, the people that made those games didn't just disappear. They took those experiences with them and they went on to work for different companies. And eventually they were successful. Sometimes they left the industry, Mm. but this is an industry as much about creative failure as it is about creative success. You know, everything that we see in video games today is as much down to experiments that failed as it is experiments that succeeded. That's the fascinating, wonderful thing about video games. Well, talking about creative successes, this has been a mammoth episode and we're going to end on what is an absolute, no, no, absolutely. It's been a very, incredible to delve into the history of video games and exactly why you've chosen these games for all these amazing reasons but we are going to move on to your final game which is an absolutely mammoth game and it is one of the biggest games of all time and is a cultural phenomenon across the world now so let's listen to some music and dive straight into it So, Keith, the final game on your list is the worldwide craze that was created by Marcus Notch Person and then later developed by Mojang. It was released in Alpha for PC back in 2011. It's seen 14 different platform releases and is the third highest selling game in the history of video games. It is that wonderful blocky world of Minecraft. Minecraft. 
Minecraft, yes. I could not, there's no way I could have done this list without having Minecraft on there. So, yeah, it's a, a massively important uh, video game to me and, uh, and to the industry in so many, so many different ways. So, it, yes, it's, it had to be there. I mean, um, obviously, I've just written a novel which uh, has Minecraft at its core in a lot of ways, and it's based on my own, in some ways, on my own experiences with the game and with my uh, son, Zach, who is on the autism spectrum, who I started playing Minecraft at a very young age, three or four, I think. And, um, you know, he um, he's reasonably high up on the autism scale, but he has... Um, lots of difficulties with uh, expressing himself verbally so he's very kind of he's got very limited vocabulary yes and a limited ability to engage conversationally and um so i started you know finding ways of that we share things together and i saw minecraft for the first time at an xbox showcase where i was shown it by a guy called roger carpenter at microsoft and he was showing me the first version of the xbox 360 ver uh, version of the game um by 4j studios up in scotland oh so you came and quite late into yeah i was reasonably late i mean i'd heard of minecraft i knew it but i was playing so many more console games at that time and i'd not uh, really okay. played it yeah so yeah so as soon as it came to consoles I thought now, now now i'm interested thank you very much so i was reasonably late so i got hold of the you know when it when it came out we downloaded it i played it with my son and i put it on and my you know we were messing around in the world with my son and he uh like you know, I've explained it like it was a light bulb switching on in his head. He just immediately got it. He understood what he was supposed to do. He understood all the systems. He understood what the, the parameters and the possibilities of the game. And, and he plays. Um, he played it with his his younger brother Albie, and the two of them just explored this world together. And yeah, I, you know, I cannot, I cannot explain what a profound impact it, it had on his life and on our lives as a family. The fact that here was a creative toy that he understood and that he was good at and that he was able to communicate in and express himself in. Um, like even now, it kind of chokes me up to think about. Oh. To think about <laughs> so... Um, I'm sorry, so, yeah. I'm totally oh, no, abandoning no. you to an island yeah. where you're going to play <laughs> yeah. a game that reminds so, you of your son. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm extremely that, sorry. Yeah, that, that, you know, it's my choice, and I and I think you know it'll be, be a bittersweet experience playing playing the game on this island because it is to me it's so intrinsic, and it's so weird, and it, but it's quite a 21st century thing, and I think it's going to happen to more people. You know, we all have so you know everybody has a song in their life that reminds them of something that happened to them. Uh, that takes them right back to that experience. Um, it's just kind of like an emotional conduit. You know, the, we understand that films can do that and that music can do that. Well, video games can do it too. Yeah, And um, Minecraft takes me back always to that moment when I realised that my son had a tool that he understood and that he enjoyed and that he was good at. And when he started to bring friends home and show them how to play it, you know, this is a, you know, he's often behind everybody else and has to be shown and people have to be patient with him. Yeah. But this was a world that he was leading. He understood. He met, kind of memorized and understood the crafting um, process and knew how to craft certain things and knew where to find stuff. He was the boss was of just, this world. Yeah, exactly. He was the boss in this world. And it's just, you know, and he learned loads of new words as well. Like his vocabulary was quite small, but... 
then he started coming out with words like obsidian and <laughs> you know ender dragon and um you know he could la- name so many minerals um so you know it gave him a vocabulary as well and i wrote a so i wrote a couple of features on you know on, on this um about this happening and and it was because of that that the um, the, um edward who's a senior editor at little brown the big book publishing company saw this and emailed me and said you know i think this is a possibility for a novel this is you know not uh not an autobiographical novel but this is a good basis a, a, a son and his father an autistic boy and his father communicating through a game i think this is like a really resonant story i think this could really really work and so i wrote a, i just didn't you know i'd never thought about writing a novel so i wrote a synopsis and i wrote a couple of chapters on a flight to los angeles and emailed to him and didn't think anything would happen to be honest and then a few days later he said yes i love it here's a contract uh you're writing a book and i need it in nine months um <laughs> and uh so yeah so that i've written him it's a novel about a, fa- a father who um uh, his relationship uh with the mother falls apart he leaves the family home he's struggled all his li- he's struggled all of his son's life to communicate with his son to forge a relationship because his son is autistic and they meet online in Minecraft, and that is how they form a relationship. And the book is about how Minecraft kind of facilitates that, and how you know Minecraft is a creative world, not only in terms of what it allows you to do within that realm, but also in the relationships it allows you to have. Um, you know, there's so many, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of stories of people meeting on Minecraft servers, uh, forming friendships. Uh, people have created whole careers out of it. You know, people like Stampy Cat. Uh, the the great funny YouTuber Diamond Minecart. Um, well, I was going to ask: Is your son into like those YouTube channels, the Yogs? Oh yeah, and, uh... I mean that's all they watch. You know, they don't watch terrestrial television anymore. If it was up to them, uh, we make them watch terrestrial television. If it was up to them, they watch YouTube videos all day. I mean, they it's love amazing diet. because it's not even just like a like a European thing. I teach in Japan and most of my students, it's like, what did you do last night? I watched YouTube. What did you watch? I watched Minecraft videos. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's incredible. And I think there's lots of reasons why that is. And I think it is because, like every, almost all the games I've talked about uh, today, they allow you to imprint your own stories into the world. And I think people like watching the stories that other people have imprinted. You know, when Stampy Cat plays Minecraft, it's very much a, a, a soap opera about his experiences within that world. It allows Minecraft allows you to have something like that. So people are watching when they're watching Stampy or PewDiePie or, or Ali A or whoever it is playing Minecraft. They are kind of watching a story um, with a beginning, a middle and an end and full of characters and fun and adventures and hijinks. And that's what we kind of want to watch that's what we want to experience we like watching humans getting into scrapes and then getting out of them so minecraft facilitates that in lots of different ways in a very very approachable understandable safe world so um you know i and i love that experimental element of minecraft every time i generate a world in minecraft i think to myself just like i do in civilization just like i do in the sims what experiment am i going to do today where am i going to i'm going to build a bond lair that's built inside <laughs> of a volcano with an entire glass wall me and um, my friends had a great well the kind of the only experience i really had with minecraft that was not enjoyable but i never really got into it like everyone else did but one of the best best times i had in university was getting drunk with my friends and then digging as far down (laughs) as we possibly could and then waking up in the morning and being like 
where am I? <laughs> How yeah. do I get out of here? <laughs> yeah. What do I do? <laughs> it's like, yeah, kind of like a virtual version of the hangover. Basically, <laughs> essentially, just <laughs> keep digging, keep digging, and then try and get your way out. It, it, it yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, Minecraft produces and allows you to come up with the solutions to wacky problems. And there's always something weird. Every time you play, something stupid happens. Um, you know, first time we played, we were just like in fits of laughter when a cow tried to jump through the house of the over the window <laughs> of the house we just made and kind of got stuck. And it's like we were just like a, we just cod nuts that we could barely breathe. It was so funny. Um, have you but, have you met Notch? I haven't. I mean, we've spoken um, on Twitter. Um, and emailed a few times, but no, I've not. I've not met him. I'd really, really love to, uh, but I have not met him. Are you I'm going to try we... and send him a copy of? Yeah, Snowball? definitely. I mean, I've tried to get in contact with him since he left Mojang, and it's been it's quite difficult because obviously, you know, he's living a very different life now. Yeah, um, that billionaire so, life. Yeah, yeah, that that form of different life. So I'd love <laughs> him to see the book. I really would because really, it's kind of it's kind of a a pay on to to what a tribute to him and his team at Mojang really um, is about the possibilities that video games afford us as human beings to to talk to each other um, you know like one of the things that's really struck me over the last few years of playing games you know I'm playing a lot of the division at the moment is that as a you know as a man I'm not very likely to pick up the phone and call one of my male friends and talk because that's just not something that we yeah. necessarily do no. but i will go and play destiny or division and we'll play and we'll shoot stuff but we'll talk about our lives at the same time i often talk about video games as being kind of permissive spaces so they allow you to do stuff you wouldn't do anywhere else and one of those things is talking to each other like human beings and that kind of sounds weird because you think well what's human about being in you know on a planet shooting aliens but it's just a place that allows you to talk. And I think that's why... It's almost like a safe space where yeah. you're carrying out your macho fantasy by... Not macho fantasy, but you're shooting people and being good at this Twitch-related game. And yes. then you're also like, well, do you know what? I've, I'm having issues at work where I don't feel appreciated by my boss. What do you think I should do? Or that kind of thing. Or exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, you go back through the history of humanity and we've always needed excuses to talk to each other whether that was you know a 13th century king going out hunting with his you know, with his uh, knights whether it was through the 60s and the 70s businessmen meeting on the golf course um we need environments which facilitate communication communication honest communication is difficult yeah and um we need places where we feel comfortable to do that. And I think video games now in a very tangible way provide that space where we feel comfortable. You know, the communities that have grown up around video games are just so important in this era of digital technology and communication. And it is so easy to feel alienated from the world. You know, like school is so ridiculously difficult these days. Um, you know, American high schools are so kind of messed up. Um, <laughs> You know, public high schools in, in 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 so many ways, they're such complex and difficult environments that to be able to, to escape and be known for your abilities and your achievements um, and your personality within a virtual world 
it's like massively valuable to a lot of people it's such a well escape. we have so yeah, many but... stories now or documentaries about like i met my friends through playing super smash brothers or yeah. i met my friends playing league of legends or world of warcraft and i bonded with these people over this common ground but you know they were all the same age as i was and they were having the same problems i was in school or in life yeah. and that kind of thing exactly i've just seen i've seen so much of that throughout my 20 years in the games industry i've seen so many people who have seen games as a way to socialize but also as a form of therapy and you know that's one of the interesting things that's happening with the indie scene now is that we are seeing lots more games which are autobiographical which are subjective you know we are in this punk era of games where you if you want to express yourself you can just get game maker or twine or you know what whatever and make it a simple game which expresses something just like you could in the 70s grab a guitar learn a two chords or three chords and shout into a microphone and express yourself yeah video games uh, you know have that ability they're so massively important and um yeah i just think they are in some ways the punk community of the digital era in that they're facilitating they facilitate creativity for everybody, it democratizes creativity in like fascinating and important ways. Fantastic. Well, Keith, it's been absolutely incredible to speak to you. You are no worries. You have been someone whose work I've read for many, many years. Oh, thank it's you. It's been amazing to speak to you today. Um, oh, it's bef- been fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> to have someone like yourself enjoy the show, as well as wanting to come on the show, is amazing to me and it's incredible to talk about all these stories as someone who's always wanted to work in video game journalism and wanted to talk about video games professionally hearing all these stories and these wonderful stories of your time in journalism and what these games mean to you because of all these different times is amazing oh cool okay well thank you so much thanks for letting me talk about it (laughs) well before i let you go the last question i usually ask people is if you could choose any console including the back catalog as well Mm. as the other games, but you can only have those consoles to play those one game. If you could choose any console that meant a lot to you to play for the rest of your days on this island, what console would it be? Oh, Dreamcast. It's got to be Dreamcast. Um, Because (laughs) the games were so good and so interesting and weird and kind of problematic that... um, I think I would always be fascinated. Like, it'd be really, uh, like, there are obviously some amazing games on, like, I, I've got nothing against, uh, the, you know, the reign of PlayStation. PlayStation 1 allowed, had some amazing, incredible games. Um, Xbox 360 has been a really important console to me. You know, I discovered, like, Call of Duty Modern Warfare on there, and it was fantastic. Yeah, the online, um, almost like the solidification of how important online gaming is came because yeah, of Xbox Live. I, I think Xbox 360 is probably one of the well, one of the sort of top five most important video game consoles of all time. But there was just something about that era of experimentation and hope with Dreamcast. Things like, you know, you could go all the way from Soul Calibur to Space Channel 5 in terms of tone and temperament. <laughs> it was an era of, yeah, it was an era of experimentation. It was the last kind of great era of, like japan and japan japanese game design ideology kind of leading the way yeah and being really free and open and everybody learned from it i think that was really yeah it was really fascinating and you know to be able to play if i you know to have a games library that included 
Shenmue and Jet Set Radio and Rez and um, Ready to Rumble. You know, those are those are great games that I'm probably not going to tire of, even though I'll probably wistfully at times long for an Xbox 360 and copy of Warfare. <laughs> well, I you think. would be the second person to have chosen the Dreamcast, uh, Mr. Simon Parkin also chose the Dreamcast. Oh, I see we have a lot in common, me and Parkin. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been amazing to speak to you today, as I said, and I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I can't thank you much. I can't thank you much. No, I can't thank you enough for appearing on the show today. So thank you very much, Keith. I very much appreciate it. If, would you like to tell the people, if they are still listening, where Mm. they can find you or what you want them to look at? Yeah, well, you can find me on The Guardian, um, I, where, where, I'm, where I write all the time. And also, I guess, if you're interested in finding out more about Boy Made of Blocks, it's out in September on Little Brown in hardback and I think in spring next year in paperback. Are you um, going to make it available like... in Japan so I can read it? That's what's important. I I don't think we sold the rights in Japan yet. Um, How am I so... going to read it? How am I going to read it? I'll send you a copy, don't worry. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> You uh, yeah, we'll be in touch anyway about our video game idea. So, yes, uh, we do. We yeah. have to. Well, I'm going to come back to the UK and we're going to have a game jam and see if we can knock it out. <laughs> let's get like let's get like William Pugh who made the Beginner's Guide and uh, um, that wonderful game that I'm forgetting the name of now. Uh, what? Oh, um, um, what the latest game he made with no, a really really no, long time. the 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 excellent Stanley Parable. Ah, oh yes, there we yes. Go. Yeah, Let's get right. William Pugh yeah. to come and help us out. And... He'd be good. Or oh, oh, um, Dan Pinchbeck from Chinese Room. He'd yes. Be good as well. Yes. Let's mm. get those guys. And let's have a game. Not <laughs> in a room. Kidnap them. Yes. Kid- uh, and yeah, it'll be like, uh, it'll be like misery. Um, he'll, we'll lock them in and we'll make we'll, them abandon yeah, their country. What we can do is we can lock them in a dark room and just whisper keywords in like walking yeah. simulator and <laughs> roguelike. <laughs> and let's see what happens. What happens. <laughs> well thank you so much thank you once again for listening to final games this has been the ninth episode i can't believe it's already been nine episodes and i've had such incredible guests um if you'd like to follow me on twitter you can at liam bme and you can also follow the show at final game show if you want to email us you can email me at finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. We're on SoundCloud and we're on iTunes, so you can rate the show as well. Also, if you wouldn't mind, I review games. I make video reviews and I recently reviewed Hitman, thanks to Square Enix sending me a code. So if you'd like to check out what I thought of Hitman, please go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash C forward slash got rare. And I would very much appreciate you checking that out as well. So thank you once again for listening to Final Games and thank you to Keith for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. And thank you to listening to this absolutely mammoth episode, which has possibly been my my favorite by far. It's been oh. excellent. So thank you so much. <laughs> so thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye.